In Ukraine, military forces have had their most significant breakthrough in the country's south since Russia invaded Ukraine. They've broken through Russian defenses and advanced enough to threaten supply lines for thousands of Russian troops. Coming up, Vladimir Putin's mindset as he loses the upper hand in the war. It's Monday, October 3rd, and this is All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also coming up, hurricanes are growing stronger and more frequent due to climate change, and they're doing more damage in the process. We'll take a look at how cities should plan to be more resilient in future storms. And Planned Parenthood is launching a mobile abortion clinic that it plans to park near the border of states that have made access to abortion more difficult. These stories and the forecast and on Wall Street, stocks extend their rally into the final hour of trading today. The Dow jumped more than 700 points. It's 4.01. News headlines are coming up next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. Strong rebound on Wall Street today. All major market indices end the day up roughly 2.5%. NPR's David Gura has more. The end of what has been an abysmal year for stocks is in sight. And in the coming weeks, investors will assess how companies have navigated a host of challenges, including a strong U.S. dollar and high interest rates, They'll also scrutinize their outlooks. Wall Street is looking ahead to new jobs data this week. Bond yields are down, which is good news for anyone who's holding bonds now. Last week, the yield on the 10-year Treasury was briefly above 4% for the first time in more than a decade. David Gura, NPR News, New York. President Biden's in Ponce, Puerto Rico, pledging $60 million in infrastructure aid to help Puerto Rico rebuild from Hurricane Fiona nearly two weeks ago. Thank you, Governor, for your partnership as we uh, work together to help rebuild Puerto Rico. And I mean rebuild it all and rebuild it in a resilient way. So, you know, when storms come again, which they will, they're not having the damage they caused before. Many across the island remain without power, the result of a crippled energy grid devastated by Hurricane Maria five years ago. NPR's Martin Costi has an update from recovery from Hurricane Ian. Fort Myers is in Lee County, where more than half of power customers are still waiting. Tavares Schley lives in the historically black neighborhood of Dunbar, and he's been cooking outside. Yeah, we ain't got no choice, man, but the grill. We, we ain't got no power, you know. Tap water is down to a trickle, and it's not safe to drink, so volunteers have been passing out bottled water throughout the city. Schley says even though this part of Fort Myers fared better than the beachfront, there's still a lot to do. What we're trying to do is come together as a neighborhood, start cleaning up before the city get here, because it's going to be a couple of days, maybe weeks, before the city get over here, you know. Martin Costi, NPR News, Fort Myers. Convoys of electricians, local and out-of-state, are working 12 to 20-hour days to restore power. Joe Canfield, a field superintendent for Carter Electric, describes what crews are up against. A lot of trees down, a lot of power lines down. The reports I'm getting back from my guys in the field is everything south of uh, Cape Coral is completely leveled. Fort Myers Beach is, as, as one guy put it to me, gone. The staff at Moat Marine Laboratory and Aquariums assessing Hurricane Ian's impact on marine conservation. Moat's president, Dr. Michael Crosby, says the health of coral reefs is in everyone's interest. Any area around the world that has barrier islands or coral reefs uh, offshore, that is Mother Nature's natural resiliency to storm waves. So imagine if you don't have a coral reef around the Florida Keys, you have 20-foot waves breaking on the keys themselves instead of on the coral reefs. Many scientists agree hurricanes are intensifying more quickly because of climate change. You're listening to NPR News.
This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Drivers for the food delivery company Cisco are on strike in Plimpton. About 300 unionized workers at Cisco's warehouse there walked off the job Saturday. They want higher pay, better health insurance, and a pension. The company says it's offered pay increases and says the strike is disrupting deliveries to food service companies, including restaurants, schools, and health care facilities. Gas prices continue to drop in Massachusetts despite an uptick across the nation. The price of regular unleaded in the state is $3.49 a gallon. That's $0.08 cents lower than a week ago and $0.46 cents lower than a month ago. AAA spokesman Mark Shieldrop says that trend should continue. I think motorists should expect continued gas price declines in the coming weeks. The main issue right now that we're looking at is that demand is just not there. Demand is at recession levels. Shieldrum says the increase in gas prices nationally is largely attributable to higher prices in California. He says that state is dealing with a near-record shortage of gasoline inventory. Massachusetts residents who receive benefits through SNAP, or the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, now have more ways to shop for food. The state announced today that beneficiaries can use their SNAP debit cards to buy eligible groceries online at Shaw's and Star Market. More than a dozen other retailers also accept SNAP debit cards online. Rough seas are forcing some disruptions to ferry service between Cape Cod and Martha's Vineyard. The Steamship Authority says it's diverted seven trips today. They were scheduled to and from Oak Bluffs and nearby Vineyard Haven. The National Weather Service says gusty winds are causing seas of up to 10 feet. Should remain windy, cloudy for the remainder of the day today. Overnight tonight, look for temperatures in the 40s. Some rain tomorrow afternoon. Gray skies once again. Breezy, a little bit milder, moving towards 60 tomorrow. 54 degrees now in Boston at 406. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bentley University, where students learn the power of good business and how it can make the world a better place. Bentley University, a force for business, a force for good. And Procter & Gamble, maker of ZQuil Pure Z's gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at ZQuil.com. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. If you are following events in Russia and Ukraine closely, you could be forgiven for wondering if Vladimir Putin has backed himself into a corner. Many thousands of Russians are fleeing the country, trying to avoid being drafted to fight in the war. Phony so-called elections in four Ukrainian provinces, provinces which Russia now says it has annexed, are being mocked in capitals around the world. And on the battlefield, Ukraine keeps winning. So where does all this leave Putin? What cards does he still hold? Questions I want to put now to Michael McFall. He served as U.S. ambassador to Russia from 2012 to 2014 and now is the director of the Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies at Stanford University. Ambassador, great to speak with you. Thanks for having me. Over the weekend, you tweeted this, quote, Putin needs to cut his losses before it's too late. Explain. Well, the conventional wisdom out there, including analysts in our country and around the world, is that Putin can accept defeat. He will double down. He'll fight to the end. He might even use nuclear weapons. I've known Putin for a long time, written about him for decades. 
that would be my prediction too. And most certainly he is doubling down now, right? He's not retreating. He's trying to mobilize 300,000 soldiers and he's up the ante by annexing territory the size of Portugal. And just let's be clear, this, this is really unprecedented. This is a more aggressive Vladimir Putin than we were watching even six months ago. Exactly. But that doesn't mean he'll be successful. And what I was trying to say in that tweet, if he was rational, he might think about cutting his losses but, but tragically, and I say this, I want to emphasize that word, tragically, if he did say, okay, I'm done, let me have Donbass and Crimea, the places I was basically controlling before, I think there would be a lot of leaders around the world that might support him. Uh, that would be a face-saving way out. It's not my prediction, uh, but it would be a different way out than just fighting forever. Do we know if Putin understands how badly things are going for Russia and Ukraine? That's a great question. And I don't have a great answer. I know from past experience, and most certainly in the run-up to the initial invasion decision, that he had bad information. By the way, he's had bad information for a long time. Even when I was ambassador, we used to write cables back to Washington talking about how small his inner circle is, and he doesn't listen to anybody. That was a long time ago, gotten worse, especially during COVID. What I don't know, has he corrected for that uh, right now? I would not say there's any evidence to suggest that he has. Um, in terms of what other things might influence how things play out, what signs are you watching for as to whether there may be any cracks, any fissures emerging among Putin's inner circle? I mean, it's one thing to have pressure from below, to have people protesting or hopping on planes to flee the country. What about at the top? You're seeing signs. Uh, they're small signs. We shouldn't exaggerate them. But I'm struck by how much just in the last 48 hours it's happened. So this guy Kadyrov, he's the leader of Chechnya. He's a very nasty, horrible person, you know, but a strong man who brought law and order to Chechnya. He is now criticizing they've lost the war. They have to fight harder. Mr. Prigozhin, who he runs a group called the Wagner Group, a private paramilitary operation with forces fighting in Ukraine. He said something even worse, like the general should be thrown to the front lines and, and be killed. Uh, you see it on the television shows. I, I, you know, I watched these shows from time to time to get a feel for the mood and they're, they're lamenting what's happening. And if that's what's being said in public, I can only imagine what's being said privately by elites in Moscow today. Interesting. So let's end on a note of hope. Um, I want to ask about one other thing that you tweeted over the weekend, which was that, yes, there's a whole lot of bad news in the world today, but that people in two countries, in Iran and in Ukraine, are giving you hope. I want you to describe what you see that caused you to write that. Well, you know, we've been in a 15 or 16 year global recession uh, with respect to democracy. And you look around the world and you don't see, you know, when will this end? I feel like it's ending in Ukraine because, you know, let's be clear, President Zelensky and the incredible warriors of Ukraine and the society there, they are fighting to defend their democracy against an invading dictatorship and they're winning. It's not to say they'll win in the long run, but it feels hopeful. When I talk to Ukrainians, it feels hopeful. And same in Iran, another country I've been following for, for many decades. We've had episodic explosions of nonviolent civic resistance, usually led by women, by the way, and in this case, most certainly led by women. I don't know how it ends, but when brave people stand up for what they believe in, you have to be inspired. 
Michael McFall, he is former U.S. ambassador to Russia, now a professor at Stanford. Ambassador, thank you. Thanks for having me. As if Hurricane Ian didn't cause enough damage, hurricanes are only growing stronger and more frequent due to climate change. Same with other mass flooding events. So how can communities better protect themselves from rising waters? Well, to help us answer that question, I talked earlier with Brett Sanders. He's a professor of civil engineering at the University of California, Irvine, and he specializes in urban flooding. And I started by asking him, Are we seeing storm damage more often now? And if so, why? We're seeing storm damage increase uh, geometric rates. And the reason is, is several fold. First of all, people are increasingly moving into cities. And in the U.S., they're moving more and more to coastal cities. And so we're seeing more and more of the population concentrated in areas that could be impacted you know, by, a, by a storm and by a flood. Mm. And that's pressured cities to build in areas that historically weren't used to have housing and to have infrastructure. So it put more people in harm's way. Another really important reason is that as these cities get bigger and bigger, rainfall that, that comes down out of the sky, and as you mentioned, um, our warmer atmosphere is holding more and more moisture. This rainfall is hitting more and more concrete and more and more built surfaces, and it's just running off really quickly and putting a lot of people at risk of this rainfall-driven flooding. Wow, that's so interesting. Well, with these growing cities in coastal flood-prone areas, I mean, I'm curious, on a scale of 1 to 10, how would you grade the flood resiliency in those areas? Well, we've seen on a scale of 1 to 10, maybe a 5. We've... (laughs) Wow. We we can do much better. Yeah. So far, we haven't been successful in the U.S. building structures that are ready to tolerate the floods of this next century. Okay, so when it comes to building more flood-tolerant infrastructure, what are the first things that local governments should do to address that? The, the first thing that they need to do is map out the areas most at risk, understand areas where there should be no more building. Those are areas where we need to seriously consider stepping back, getting out of harm's way, leaving room for nature. Secondly, in the areas where we can tolerate some flooding, we need to make sure that the structures we put there are gonna hold up against the storm. And we can do that with new building codes, land use at the local level, and so on. And lastly, across urban areas, we need to make more room for water to move. We need channels and flowways and green spaces that can create space for these big rainfall events Mm, to drain. And at the same time, it's a huge opportunity because these green spaces create a more livable city. Yeah. Well, now that we're all seeing the damage in Florida from Hurricane Ian and the Carolinas, if you had the ear of every urban planner in the Southeast right now, what would you tell them? Reimagine what your city could look like in the future in a more resilient form. How could we use our land most effectively, creating space for the environment, space for our communities to thrive, a more livable city? This is an opportunity to reset for a safe future. Uh, We simply can't afford to rebuild like we were before. That's a recipe to have one disaster after another. After these events, a lot of federal money becomes available to help communities do precisely this. Mm -hmm. Major investments in infrastructure, in waterways, in, in, in drainage systems. So if those resources are used effectively, this can be an incredible opportunity for coastal communities to grow in the future. 
That is Brett Sanders, professor of civil engineering at the University of California, Irvine. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Just days into his new job last month, Britain's finance minister announced a series of tax proposals that would usher in what he called a new economic era for Britain. That plan prompted a major sell-off in the country's currency and its government debt, causing havoc for UK pension funds and mortgage lenders alike. But the finance minister and his boss, Prime Minister Liz Truss, refused to back down until today, as Willem Marx reports. Finance Minister Kwasi Kwarteng has changed direction by cancelling an element of his plans that would have seen the country's highest earners enjoy a 5% cut to their tax burden. A small part of a much larger financial stimulus package, it had proved politically unpalatable, with the wealthiest retaining more of their wages as the country's poorest are seeing their pay struggle to keep up with spiralling inflation. Nevertheless, Liz Truss appeared on a top political talk show Sunday morning and was asked by the BBC's Laura Koonsberg if she was still absolutely committed to abolishing the top tax rate for the UK's wealthiest people. Yes, and it is part, Laura, it is part of an overall package Mm -hmm. of making our tax system simpler and lower. Last month, it was markets reacting badly to the unusual dearth of details in the government's overall proposals. Since then, it's been members of Truss's own Conservative Party bashing the top tax rate idea. One senior former minister called it a, quote, display of the wrong values. Even so, last night, a pre-released version of Kwarteng's planned speech to the annual Conservative Party conference included an urge to, quote, stay the course on his tax-cutting plans. This morning, he performed what Britain's political press likes to call a screeching U-turn. During a radio interview, he said he would no longer cut that top rate of tax. My job is simply to deliver an ambitious set of policies, and I'm very proud of that. And I've listened on the 45p rate. I think it was a huge distraction on uh, the growth plan. And that's why I've decided not to proceed with its abolition. This climb down constitutes a major challenge to the stability of Truss's new government, showing critics both inside her own party and among her opponents that she can succumb to pressure, public or parliamentary. For NPR News, I'm Villa Marks in London. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up on WBUR's All Things Considered, a group of angry library patrons in Texas has gone to court over book removals and a rare example of readers pushing back. On Wall Street, the first day of trading today and stocks get a jump start. The Dow surged more than 2.5 percent. That's 765 points to close at 29,491. S&P rose more than 2.5 percent as well to settle at 36.78. The Nasdaq picked up about 2.25 percent to close at 10,815. Details coming up on Marketplace tonight at 6.30. It's now 419. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by LabShares Newton, with state-of-the-art, fully-equipped BL2 lab space just outside Cambridge. Learn more at labshares.com. And Love is Calling at the ICA. Yayoi Kusama's Infinity Mirror Room offers endless reflections and the illusion of space. ICABoston.org. Clouds to finish off the day. They should spend the night as well. Breezy and colder tonight in the mid-40s. Could have some rain tomorrow afternoon. Gray skies all day long. Breezy, a little bit milder, moving towards 60. Wednesday may be damp, but it could turn sunny and warmer as the week goes on. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include JBS Home Inspections. With condo common area inspections, as well as home inspections for buyers and sellers throughout Greater Boston, jbsinspections.com. And the Harvard Institute for Learning and Retirement. Peer-led courses, speakers, and more. Apply now for 2023. The Harvard Institute for Learning and Retirement. 
Rich Hill takes the mound tonight as the Red Sox hosts Tampa Bay at Fenway Park. Your mobile phone is a radio on the go. Listen on the WBR mobile app wherever you are and stay informed about all the day's news. 54 degrees now in the Boston area. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies from nonprofits to the Fortune 500 find food for meetings and team lunches, tax exempt ordering, and delivery nationwide at easycater.com. And from Fidelity Wealth Management, working to help investors keep more of what they earn with tax efficient strategies at fidelity.com/slash wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, member NYSE. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. The free expression group PEN America reports more library books have been banned in Texas than any other state. In a rare lawsuit on the matter, a group of angry library patrons in one small Texas town has gone to court over book removals. NPR's John Burnett has more. A year ago, the government of Llano County, about an hour northwest of Austin, started pulling books it found objectionable from its three public libraries. By the time the purge was over, 17 titles were gone, including Maurice Sendak's award-winning In the Night Kitchen. Ray Bradbury once said, uh, there's more than one way to burn a book, and the world is full of people running around with matches. Do you feel like that's going on in Llano County? Yeah, it's a scary time when people are trying to get rid of books from public institutions. Leela Green-Little is the lead plaintiff in a federal lawsuit against Llano County that contends the government cannot dictate which books patrons can and cannot read. It all began with three children's books, My Butt is So Noisy, I Broke My Butt, and I Need a New Butt. Because the books contained illustrations of bare bottoms, a handful of outraged citizens in Llano called them, quote, pornographic filth. The author, Dawn McMillan, emailed NPR from her home in New Zealand, I wrote the butt books for fun with no intention to offend anyone and with no agenda of any kind. They're silly stories bringing laughs while getting kids, especially boys, into reading. One of the co-plaintiffs is Jeannie Preer, a 76-year-old retired clerical worker who votes Republican. I just think it's censorship, pure and simple. Preer says she used to check out kids' books to read to her grandchildren, and she was curious why the new banned books were considered so offensive. Because I wanted to see what was so bad about them. And frankly, I, I couldn't find anything. The butt books and the, the farting books, I mean... It's a fact of life. Kids find it funny. None of the defendants or their attorney agreed to interviews for this story. In its reply to the lawsuit, the county contends that a public library has, quote, broad discretion to decide what material to provide to their patrons and that the First Amendment does not apply. We're not saying to get rid of the books and burn them, you know. This isn't Nazism or something where you're going to get rid of them. Stacy Nobles is pastor of the Llano Cowboy Church. He wrote a letter to the local newspaper supporting the book removals. He's drinking coffee in a local cafe. Nobody banned it. What they said was, this is not appropriate for the children's section of books. If mom or dad want the child to be able to read that book, then mom and dad can check it out and hand it to the child. 
The county says the lawsuit is, quote, hyperbolic and absurd because the books at issue, while not in the stacks, are still available through interlibrary loan, an online book database, or by special request at the checkout desk. The furor began over books in the children's section, but plaintiff Leela Green Little says the kids' books were just the beginning. This isn't just Maury Sendak books and the quote-unquote butt books being taken off the shelves. There's other books, you know, that are not targeted towards children that um, this group of citizen censors has had pulled off the shelves. In addition to children's books, four highly regarded and awarded books for adults and young adults came off the Lano Library shelves. They are Being Jazz, My Life as a Transgender Teen, Spinning, a book about a young figure skater who comes out, Cast, The Origins of Our Discontents, and They Called Themselves the KKK, The Birth of an American Terrorist Group. Early this year, according to the lawsuit, the commissioner's court created a new library advisory board, packed it with political appointees, and closed the meetings to the public. The plaintiffs say they have no recourse but the courts. We've lost friends <laughs> over this. Uh, there are people in town that used to say hi to me, and they don't do that anymore. Little is a 37-year-old grad student in library science and a mom whose kids use the public library. In Lano, a mostly white, mostly Republican, cowboy-flavored town of fewer than 4,000 souls, she says the social cost of suing the library has been profound. However, um, I knew that when my kids get older and they have something that they need to stand up for, uh, I couldn't in good conscience tell them to speak up and speak out if I didn't do the same thing myself. The first hearing to ask a federal judge to force Lano County to return the restricted books is set for the end of this month in Austin. John Burnett, NPR News, Lano, Texas. Let's turn now to My Unsung Hero, a series from the podcast Hidden Brain. It's a collection of stories about people whose kindness left a, lafting, left a lasting impression on someone else. Today's installment comes from therapist and author Lori Gottlieb, remembering a particularly bad day at work. After she got the news that a beloved patient of hers had died, she excused herself to the bathroom. When she was alone, she started to break down. As I'm crying in the bathroom... A person walks in who's dressed professionally, who I assume is another therapist on the floor. And she says, are you okay? And I said, yes, my, this patient that I was incredibly close with died. And even though I knew she was gonna die, it's the finality of it is really hitting me hard. And she was just so empathetic. She didn't really say a lot, she just sort of Oh, that must be so hard. I understand. Yeah, that's awful. You know, those kinds of things. But it was just that she connected with me, that she saw me, that I wasn't alone in my sadness for, for that minute. The next day, sitting in the waiting room was a package for me. It had my name on it. So this person figured out, I guess, who I was. And it was a package of like bath salts and lovely teas and a chocolate bar. And it was not from another therapist. It was from another patient, somebody who had been coming to see another therapist on our floor who happened to be using the bathroom. And what she wrote in the note was that 
seeing me cry over the loss of my patient was profound for her because it reminded her how much her own therapist must care about her. And she wanted me to know that patients care just as much about their own therapists. And she said that we therapists think of ourselves as taking care of our patients, but it looked like I needed someone to take care of me too, and she wanted to do that for me. And she signed it, um, somebody else's patient. She wasn't expecting anything back from me. In fact, she signed her letter anonymously for that reason. She, she was making it very clear that there was nothing transactional about it at all. It was just human to human. I see you. I was there with you in your pain. And, you know, I, I hope you're doing okay. How beautiful is that? Really beautiful. Lori Gottlieb is the co-host of the podcast Dear Therapists. Her latest book is called Maybe You Should Talk to Someone. You can find more stories from My Unsung Hero wherever you get your podcasts. And to share the story of your unsung hero, record a voice memo on your phone and email it to myunsunghero at hiddenbrain.org. This is NPR. It's NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up, Planned Parenthood is launching a mobile abortion clinic that it plans to park near the border of states that have made access to abortion more difficult since the overturn of Roe versus Wade. In the forecast, staying breezy and raw today and tonight, too, down around 45 overnight. Tomorrow, overcast again, windy and a bit warmer, right about 60 degrees. One more day of clouds along with some rain on Wednesday before things should dry up for the end of the work week. A chilly night for the Fenway faithful tonight. The Red Sox open their final series at 7-10 against Tampa Bay Rays. Rich Hill takes the mound tonight against Tyler Glasnow. It's 54 degrees at 4:30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Porter Square Books, a neighborhood bookstore in Cambridge and Boston, with events, book recommendations, a book club, children's story hour, and more. PorterSquareBooks.com and H and H, the Handel and Haydn Society, performing the glories of Bach. Immerse in Bach's masterworks Friday and Sunday at Symphony Hall. HandelandHaydn.org. A few hundred farmers in California's Imperial Valley take an enormous share of the water from the Colorado River, which has less and less to give. The river has a gun to everybody's heads, and it's in everybody's interest to try and work out this thing. How much can farmers change their approach? Tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. That's Morning Edition 5 to 9 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. Cleanup and assessment continue in Florida after Hurricane Ian slammed the Gulf Coast last week, leaving at least 93 people dead. Lee County was hardest hit. That's where Ian came ashore with 150-mile-an-hour winds and a strong storm surge. About 100 National Guard troops and others started work this morning to provide a passage to Pine Island after the hurricane destroyed parts of the only bridge that connects the barrier island to the mainland. Lee County Sheriff Carmine Marcino. We are working with FDOT to begin the construction of a temporary gravel bridge to get people on and off the island. 
Search and rescue teams are still combing the rubble for any survivors and for anyone who didn't make it out. Iran's supreme leader today broke his silence about nationwide protests that have roiled the country. And Pierce Peter Kenyon reports he blamed what he called rioting on agents of the U.S. and Israel. Supreme Leader Ayatollah Ali Khamenei has kept silent for weeks as other officials reacted to the waves of demonstrations that erupted following the death of a young woman in the custody of the so-called morality police. Khamenei said the death of 22-year-old Masa Amini, quote, left us heartbroken, but he embraced the hardline government's condemnation of the protests, telling a group of police students that they had been, quote, designed by America and the Zionist regime. Iran state television has estimated the death toll at 41, though human rights groups have put the toll higher. The protests broadened beyond Amini's death to include discontent with soaring prices, unemployment, and social and political repression. Peter Kenyon, NPR News, Istanbul. Wall Street much higher by the closing bell, starting off the final quarter of the year strong as bond yields fall. The Dow was up 765 points. That's up 2.6 percent. The Nasdaq gained 239 points. That's up 2.2 percent. The S&P 500 up 92 points. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Unionized graduate students are on strike at Clark University in Worcester. The union that represents the students who teach and do research for the school says the goal of the strike is to determine higher wages, affordable health care, and better working conditions. The students voted to unionize back in April. Clark University officials say they're disappointed the students have chosen to strike rather than focus on negotiations with the school. State lawmakers will ask the State Department of Public Utilities to defend its oversight of MBTA safety later this week. A joint legislative committee has called a hearing on Thursday. It will review the department's formal response to a Federal Transit Administration's investigation of the T. The federal review found the Department of Public Utilities provides lax supervision of the T and that the transit system is understaffed and behind on maintenance. The Bristol County Sheriff's Office says it was closely monitoring a man who died by an apparent suicide in a jail cell yesterday. 34-year-old Adam Howe faced charges of killing his mother and burning her body in Truro. WBR's Deborah Becker has more. Prosecutors say Adam Howe was taken into custody Friday night when police responded to his mother's Truro home. Cape and Islands District Attorney Michael O'Keefe says police found Howe in the yard of the home near the burning body of his mother, Susan Howe. Prosecutors requested a mental health evaluation because Howe expressed suicidal thoughts. He was taken to the Ash Street Jail in New Bedford Saturday and was found unresponsive in his cell the next day. A statement from the sheriff's office says Howe was on security watch and visually checked every 15 minutes. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Deborah Becker. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Southern New Hampshire University, offering over 100 master's degrees online and on campus. Next term starts soon, snhu.edu. Red Sox open their final series at 7-10 tonight against Tampa Bay Rays at Fenway Park. Rich Hill takes the mound against Tyler Glass now. The series and the regular season end for the Sox on Wednesday. Should be cloudy, windy, and raw today and tonight in the mode 40s overnight. Then for tomorrow, gray all day long. Maybe some showers as well, up around 60 degrees tops. 54 degrees still under cloudy skies in the Boston area. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 435. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, 
a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at alignprobiotics.com. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end -end hiring solution to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates, all from one place. Learn more at indeed.com NPR. It's All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. With the overturning of Roe versus Wade, more patients are traveling for abortions. And now some abortion providers are trying to travel closer to them. Planned Parenthood announced today it will open its first mobile unit, providing abortions by the end of the year in Illinois. NPR's Sarah McCammon joins us now. Hi, Sarah. Hi, Juana. So, Sarah, let's just start with the basics here. What is a mobile abortion clinic and how is this going to work? Yeah, so think about an RV trailer like you might see on the highway, only rather than a, essentially a small home, this will be a small doctor's office with a couple of exam rooms, a waiting area, and a laboratory. EMLC Rodriguez is president of Planned Parenthood of the St. Louis region and southwest Missouri, and she says Illinois has become a hub for people seeking abortions from across the region. We are all trying to work together to meet the exponential increase in the number of patients that are traveling from banned states to um, what we're calling haven states for abortion care. It's an all-hands-on-deck moment. And Rodriguez says since Roe v. Wade was overturned about three months ago, the number of travelers to their clinic in Fairview Heights, Illinois, which is across the state line from St. Louis, has increased more than threefold. So this mobile unit is meant to help meet some of that demand and cut travel time for some of these patients. Okay, but an RV looks quite different from a traditional medical clinic. Can it really take the place of a traditional clinic? And what types of services will it offer? Yeah, so it's certainly a smaller space and there are limitations. Planned Parenthood plans to offer abortion pills by the end of the year and then first trimester surgical abortions next year. Dr. Colleen McNicholas, the medical director, says the patients who come to the mobile clinic will be given those pills as well as counseling about how to take them. We do have some pretty frank discussions with folks about what the legal landscape of abortion access is in their state. And we provide information you know, to help them make informed decisions. We share with them what we think the best medical practice is, and then we leave it up to them to decide how they'll execute on that. And obviously it has to stay within Illinois where abortion is legal, but it can get closer to other states' borders. Planned Parenthood says they're talking to organizations that might be able to host the unit throughout Southern Illinois, places like healthcare organizations or even churches. And Sarah, what have you been hearing from anti-abortion rights activists? Do they think that there's anything that they can do to stop this? So the abortion rights opponents I've been talking to acknowledge that it's very difficult to stop people from crossing state lines. Now, there has been some talk about that. One Missouri lawmaker, for example, proposed earlier this year some legislation modeled after SB 8 in Texas, which you may remember used civil lawsuits to enforce an abortion ban. But I talked to John Sego with Texas Right to Life, and he says expanding that concept across state lines is just not something they see as viable right now. This is kind of the new landscape with what the Supreme Court gave us is that you are going to have the unsettled landscape where abortion is accessible in some states and, you know, then prohibited in others. That said, you know, he expects Texas lawmakers at least to look at ways to try to prosecute people who do things like host websites that send abortion pills through the mail into Texas. And Sarah, just quickly back to that mobile unit. Do you think we'll see more like the one from Planned Parenthood? 
Well, this speaks to the ways that reproductive health care providers are innovating. This is the first mobile unit from Planned Parenthood that will provide abortions, but they say they may open more in the future. Another group is doing something similar in the West. And meanwhile, groups like Planned Parenthood say they're trying to expand other services like contraception, uh, particularly in places where abortion is now illegal and there's more of a need. NPR's Sarah McCammon, thank you. Thank you. A 23-year mega drought is pushing some farmers in the southwest to the brink. We're going to hear from the first place where farmers have been totally cut off from Colorado River water, central Arizona. As NPR's Kirk Sigler reports, the crisis is renewing questions about the viability of growing thirsty crops in a desert. Will Thielander has heard it all before. Yes, this harsh and hot patch of ground south of Phoenix that he farms is a desert. Yes, farms gulp up about 80% of all the water in the Colorado River Basin. But he's tired of all the shots. They're like, well, cities use less water. Okay, what has a bigger environmental impact, you know, an open farm like this or the city of Phoenix? In Phoenix, you'd hardly know there's an historic drought. They still have water. But this year, farmers here in Pinal County had their Colorado River pumps shut off. Thielander is fallowing half of his land, and at 35 years old, he's starting to get worried about the future of farming in the southwest. They didn't magically pick a desert where it was hard to get water to to start farms. There's a reason all this was done. He means as long as you have reliable irrigation, you can grow all kinds of things in the desert southwest, ironically, because it barely rains. From October to May, it's warm and sunny, and storms don't ruin crops. You can't just go, well, it's a desert and they're all water, so we'll grow food elsewhere. Well, these industries have taken 50 to 100 years to establish. You don't just go, hey, we'll grow elsewhere. It's complicated. 50 to 100 years ago, people thought the Colorado River was infinite, America's Nile. So they built a complicated and elaborate plumbing system of canals to create an enormous agricultural economy in the desert. Thus, the first thunders of man's determination to conquer the Colorado River. When the Hoover Dam was built and Lake Mead filled, cheap federally subsidized water allowed farmers to grow pecans in New Mexico, alfalfa and cotton in Arizona, greens and citrus in California. And so a vigorous modern culture replaces that of a bygone age in the southwest. The wastes of strong native growth become vast irrigated citrus farms. Well, that almost mythical river doesn't exist anymore, says Jack Schmidt, who runs the Center for Colorado River Studies at Utah State University. There have been warnings and fears about whether or not there was enough water before the scepter of climate change ever reared up. Schmidt says farmers in central Arizona particularly were always warned this day could come. Under the century-old river law, they're last in line for irrigation in a mega drought. Ted Cook manages the Central Arizona Project. It's a federal canal system built in the 60s so Arizona farmers could tap into excess Colorado River water. We are two years or less away from not being able to get any water past the dam in Lake Mead. That's, That's pretty extraordinary. It's pretty extraordinary. So something has to be done. Something's going to have to change or the Southwest is going to lose their agriculture. What farmer Will Thielander is doing for now is planting a new desert crop called Waiuli. It requires a quarter of the water that is traditional cotton and alfalfa do. So like I'm hoping on this crop right here, 
that it's going to rain, and then I don't water this for another three weeks because it's a desert crop. And then Waiuli produces a natural desert rubber. Right now, only 74 acres of Thielander's farm has been converted to it. But if the economics continue to work out, you know, I think this could be a huge crop for the Southwest. A crop he thinks could make farming sustainable here in a hotter, drier world. American tire companies are already pumping money into its cultivation. Kirk Ziegler, NPR News, Phoenix. Tomorrow on Morning Edition, we'll visit the single biggest user of water from the Colorado River. It's an irrigation district serving hundreds of farms in Southern California. And it takes more water from the river than Arizona and Nevada combined. Come back for that. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. There is a new office in the Environmental Protection Agency dedicated to environmental justice and civil rights. EPA Administrator Michael Regan says the office is needed to elevate the fight for often poor, overlooked communities of color. He announced its launch in Warren County, North Carolina. It's the birthplace of the environmental justice movement. Leonita Inge of member station WUNC reports. It's been 40 years since a small black rural community stood up and laid down in the middle of the road to stop trucks from dumping PCB-contaminated dirt in their landfill. The protesters were told not to block the trucks. They're now lying in the streets now, blocking one truck, moving into the landfill. They're refusing in order to move, and they are being arrested one by one. In September 1982, the first group of Warren County residents would meet at Coley Springs Missionary Baptist Church and walk the two miles to the landfill to try to stop the dump trucks. The story has been told several times in documentaries and on PBS. We will not allow Warren County to become a dump site. Dolly Burwell was a wife and a working mother in her 30s back then. Burwell was arrested at least five times for protesting the environmental injustice. She said it was clear her community was targeted because it was black, poor, and politically powerless. Today, Burwell is 74 years old and is often called the mother of the environmental justice movement. She recently retraced her steps to the landfill. I was not trying to create a movement. It really wasn't. And, uh, but to see 40 years later, young people still fighting for environmental justice, I'm, I'm good to go now. I could not be prouder to announce that today EPA is creating a new national office charged with advancing environmental justice and external civil rights. EPA Administrator Michael Regan told the crowd in Warren County the new office will have more than 200 people and equal the EPA offices of air and water. The new office will also distribute $3 billion in block grant money to communities Regan said have continued to fight and make a fuss. We are finally ensuring that communities who have long borne the burden of pollution see, breathe, and feel the benefits of the federal government's investments. It's about changing how our government works and who it works for. Environmental justice activists from across the country were on hand to hear Regan's words, including Ben Chavis. 
the civil rights leader from North Carolina, coined the term environmental racism and was instrumental in the Warren County protests. Actually, it goes a step beyond what I expected. Because, you know, one of the definitions of environmental racism was in the past that communities of color have been excluded at the higher levels of environmental policy. So this, this is uh, welcome news. And with this announcement, Chavis says it's clear the government is finally listening. For NPR News, I'm Leonida Inge. Six property insurance companies in Florida went under in the last year, and most Florida homeowners do not have flood insurance. So who will pay to rebuild what Hurricane Ian destroyed? You can tune in tomorrow on All Things Considered on your radio or ask your smart speaker to play NPR or your station by name. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on All Things Considered, a tense month ahead in one of the world's largest democracies as two divisive presidential candidates face each other in a runoff. Our report from Brazil is coming up. It's 448. Hi, it's Margaret Lowe, WBUR CEO. Something incredible happened during our fall fundraiser. The beginning was so slow. We were really worried that we weren't going to come close to our goal. So we got on the air and we told you that, and you rallied. It was breathtaking. You put us over the top in a big way. Thank you. Thank you for being so generous, and thank you for believing in WBUR. In the forecast, cloudy, windy, chilly tonight, right about 45 degrees for a low. Tomorrow we should wake up to clouds that should spend the day with highs near 60, gusty winds, a chance of showers, more clouds ahead on Wednesday, and more of a chance of rain around 60 once again. Could have some sunshine coming in for the end of the work week. 54 degrees now in Boston. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, powering the Engineering Design Workshop exhibit at the Museum of Science, mathworks.com MOS. Boston Ballet's My Obsession, with Stephen Galloway's Devil's Eye, set to music by the Rolling Stones, October 6th to 16th, tickets at bostonballet.org. And Cityside Subaru on Route 60 in Belmont, where the all-new 2023 Subaru vehicles are arriving. Love is out there. CitysideSubaru.com. Winter is coming and Europe needs natural gas, but oh wait, look. The main issue, the main supply bottlenecks is actually infrastructure. I'm Kai Rizdal. Infrastructure Week comes to winter in Europe. Next time on Marketplace. Tonight at 6.30 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Brazil's president, Jair Bolsonaro, has shown he is still a significant power to be reckoned with after this weekend's election. He came in second, a close second, to former president and leftist Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva. That triggered a runoff. The outcome far exceeded expectations pollsters had for Bolsonaro, as NPR South America correspondent Kerry Kahn reports. For weeks, pollsters in Brazil predicted that the current president and outspoken nationalists would suffer a double-digit loss. But Jair Bolsonaro told supporters from the yard of his Brasilia residence, 
they got it wrong. We beat the lies today, he said. They only thought we'd get about 30% of the vote, but we beat them, he added. Bolsonaro garnered 43% to leftist Luis Inacio Lula da Silva's 48%. Sao Paulo-based political scientist Guillerme Casaroyes says pollsters had a tough time gauging conservative voters who may have just changed their votes on election day. Bolsonaro has successfully created this narrative of electoral fraud and, and pollsters are fake news. So there might have been people who just refused to answer pollsters. Bolsonaro and his party picked up big wins in Congress, too. He's gained a loyal base of conservative supporters which is very high among evangelicals, like many at the Assembly of God Church in the Tijuca area of Rio. 59-year-old retiree Zuzé Jorge likes Bolsonaro's commitment to family values. Bolsonaro is more aligned with our principles, he says. God willing, he will win. But for 68-year-old street cleaner Luis Carlos, sweeping up mounds of discarded political trash in front of the church, life under Bolsonaro has been tough. When De Silva was president, I was able to put food on the table and buy a home, he said. During his term, De Silva expanded government spending and lifted more than 20 million people out of poverty. After leaving office, though, he was jailed on corruption charges, which were later annulled. Luis Carlos can imagine another Bolsonaro term. Neither can the hundreds who came to a De Silva victory party in downtown Rio. Renata Carvalho, a 29-year-old book publisher, said everyone is stunned and sad. Feeling nervous and sad, but hopeful. <laughs> Nervous, she says, about the next four weeks of tense and intense campaigning in the very polarized Brazil, yet hopeful De Silva wins the October 30th runoff. Carrie Kahn, NPR News, Rio de Janeiro. We are going to spend the next few minutes exploring the ways folklore is used to understand real-life horrors and the way those horrors can follow generations. NPR's Mallory Yu brings us the story behind the new novel Thistlefoot. It centers around an old crone, Baba Yaga, a figure in Slavic folklore for centuries. She is the kind of character who might lend you a magical candle. Or she might kill you and use your skull to decorate her house, one that walks on chicken legs. You spoke with author Jenna Rose Nethercott about reimagining Baba Yaga as a Jewish woman living in an Eastern European shtetl during a time of civil war and pogroms. The story begins with a reunion between present-day American siblings Isaac and Bellatine Yaga. After they've received word of a mysterious inheritance, which isn't land or money, but a sentient house lofted up on a pair of chicken legs. That's author Jenna Rose Nethercott. As she writes, Bellatine falls in love with the house immediately and names it Thistlefoot. Isaac, the brother, just sees dollar signs, so he convinces his sister to take it on the road as a traveling puppet show. Nethercott says she's always wanted to explore the idea of being able to take her home anywhere she went. Then the question became, what does it look like when folklore and the past starts to leak into the present? How does the past and the present tangle? So the book dips often into the past, when their ancestor Baba Yaga lived, and the horrible night when her little town, Gedenkrovka, burned. These chapters are inspired by a real period in history, which for Nethercott is personal. 
my family on my mother's side is from a small Jewish shtetl in what is now Ukraine. And Gerenkrovka in the book, I basically just changed the name of the town Rotmistrivka, where my family's from. And the historical events that we slowly learn happened to Gerenkrovka are actual historical events that happened to Rotmistrivka. Retelling her ancestral story was an intense experience. After finishing one particularly difficult scene, Nethercott says she burst into tears. Still, writing the book helped her recognize herself a little more. How much of our own little tics and anxieties and questions are something that we've inherited. I mean, it always helps to have an understanding of why we are the way we are. The siblings each have their own inherited quirks. For Isaac, it's a constant itchy restlessness that keeps him on the run. For Bellatine, a supernatural ability that terrifies her. And they have no idea why they have them. And it's through kind of learning where those came from that they're able to heal. Now, Thistlefoot the book does get dark and heavy, but it isn't dour. And that's thanks in large part to Thistlefoot the house. I'll tell you what came before. I'll recite it like a folk tale. These sorts of memories, they're easier to understand that way. See, the house is a voice in the book, too, guiding the reader through myth and legend. And like any good oral storyteller, its purpose is to make sure memory lives on. The facts can change. Place names. The color of a character's woolen coat. The particular flowers in a small, circular garden. But the core remains the same. So, the folktale survives assimilates, and with it, so survives the memory. And Jenna Rose Nethercott is practicing that oral tradition herself. She's collaborated with puppeteers and other artist friends to bring her folktale alive through a puppet show she's taking to bookstores around the country. I'm going to let the house tell the next part of this story. Her puppet theater is a beautiful white box with blue window shutters cut into lace-like patterns and a little door in the roof that Nethercott speaks through, as if Thistlefoot itself is speaking. Before I was a house, I was a baby chick, cracked loose from an egg. She even has a Baba Yaga puppet who sits on the roof and talks to a little skeleton. Good morning, red skeleton. Good morning, <laughs> You know, I couldn't let Isaac and Bellatine have all the puppetry fun. That just wouldn't be fair. It's folklore's ability to balance fun and solemnity, joy and suffering that Nethercott loves to study and write. It allows us to be playful and fun and like wide-eyed in awe. And it also allows us to address some things we may not have the ability to address otherwise. Including the memories that haunt each of us, whether we know it or not. Mallory Yu, NPR News. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief, Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. And from X-Chair, ergonomic home and office chairs. 
At home or in the office, X-Chair offers dynamic variable lumbar support, as well as Elemax heating, cooling, and massage technology at xchair.com. And from Athena Health, creating connected healthcare technology designed to improve patient outcomes and increase efficiency of healthcare practices and organizations. Learn more at athenahealth.com. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Davis Malm, committed to knowing the lay of the land, not just the law. Learn more at davismalm.com, D-A-V-I-S-M-A-L-M. And prompt.com, with a mission to help students stand out on their college applications and get into their top colleges through one-on-one application and essay coaching. More at prompt.com. I'm Ideas and Opinion Editor Chloe Axelson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. President Biden visited Puerto Rico today, two weeks after Hurricane Fiona devastated much of the island. We came here in person to show that we're with you. All of America is with you as you receive and recover and rebuild. It's Monday, October 3rd, and this is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Tens of thousands of Puerto Ricans still do not have electricity. Hurricane Ian destroyed Fort Myers Beach in Florida. In the historically black neighborhood of Dunbar, people are living without power and drinkable water. Russian men of fighting age have been fleeing their country to avoid military service in Ukraine. This is a war of our government. This is not a war of Russian people. More details about Florida Governor Ron DeSantis' migration relocation flights are coming to light, and Kim Kardashian has agreed to pay a fine of $1 million after touting cryptocurrency on Instagram. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. President Biden and the First Lady visited Puerto Rico today, nearly two weeks after Hurricane Fiona made landfall there. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports the storm left widespread destruction in its path, damaging the island's already fragile infrastructure. Thousands of people in Puerto Rico remain without electricity and clean water in the aftermath of Hurricane Fiona. Speaking in the coastal city of Ponce, President Biden said he's committed to the U.S. territory as it works to recover from the storm. We're going to make sure you get every single dollar promised. And I'm determined to help Puerto Rico build faster than in the past and stronger and better prepared for the future. Biden also encouraged people to apply for federal assistance to help with expenses while they work to rebuild. The governor of Puerto Rico has requested a six-month extension for the federal disaster declaration that the president signed into law earlier this month. Windsor Johnston, NPR News. Meanwhile, in Florida, the death toll from Hurricane Ian that hit last week has now risen to 94. President Biden is heading out to Florida this week. With a growing number of patients in states with newly enacted abortion bans now traveling for the procedure, Planned Parenthood says it will travel closer to them. As NPR's Sarah McCammon reports, the organization is announcing plans to open its first mobile abortion clinic. Illinois has become a hub for patients now unable to get abortions in their home states. By the end of the year, Planned Parenthood says it will start providing abortion pills in southern Illinois from a clinic built inside an RV. It will be able to travel closer to other states' borders. Yamelsi Rodriguez is president of 
Planned Parenthood of the St. Louis region and southwest Missouri. Our goal is to reduce the hundreds of miles that people are having to travel now in order to access care um, and meet them where, where they are. Planned Parenthood says it aims to begin offering surgical abortions eventually and may add more mobile clinics in the future. Sarah McCammon, NPR News. After just a month on the job, Britain's new finance minister has been forced to abandon one element of his new tax proposal. Villa Marx says there's been a huge political backlash against the tax break for Britain's biggest earners. Kwasi Kwarteng said his plan to cut taxes for those earning more than around $170,000 a year had become a, quote, distraction but he vowed to continue with his broader effort to reduce tax burdens on individuals and businesses to increase Britain's economic growth, despite the negative reaction of financial markets last month. Villa Marx reporting. Tesla shares the world's is the world's most valuable automaker, but shares in the company plunged today down by as much as 9% before closing slightly above that as the company missed sales targets for its most recent quarter. Stocks, however, went the other way. The Dow was up 765 points today. The Nasdaq rose 239 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Massachusetts will become home to a new center dedicated to preventing and responding to infectious disease outbreaks in the U.S. Officials with the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention selected the state to establish the New England Pathogen Genomic Center of Excellence. It'll be one of five such centers across the country. State health officials will receive $25 million to help build out the program that will focus on applying the study of human genes to public health. The city of Boston will spend nearly $7 million in federal money to expand substance abuse services across multiple neighborhoods. The new funding will increase on-the-street outreach and new daytime centers that offer medical treatment. The facilities will also provide food, water, and restrooms, along with support group activities. The federal funding comes from the American Rescue Plan Act. The cost of a ferry ride to Martha's Vineyard in Nantucket might be going up next year. The Steamship Authority says it's proposing to increase prices because of rising fuel and maintenance costs. A round-trip ticket on certain routes could go up as much as a dollar. Sean Driscoll is the authority's communications director. Inflation's hitting us just like it's hitting everybody. So these are the same forces that are driving up everybody's cost of living right now. The Steamship Authority plans to vote on the proposal later on this month. The average statewide price for gasoline is three forty-nine a gallon. That's 46 cents a gallon lower than it was a month ago, 8 cents less than last week. AAA Northeast says the prices are dropping in the Northeast but rising in the Gulf Coast and the West Coast. It says regional differences in supply are behind the differing trends. And a former insurance adjuster has been indicted on charges of stealing the identities of four victims of the Merrimack Valley gas explosions of 2018. Massachusetts Attorney General Maura Healey announced today that Lushanda Studeway of Jackson, Mississippi, is accused in the ident- of identity theft when she worked as an insurance adjuster on behalf of Columbia Gas. She has pleaded not guilty and is due back in court in December. Red Sox open their final series against Tampa Bay Rays tonight at home at Fenway Park at 710. In the forecast, a cloudy night tonight, breezy and cooler, about the mid-40s. Then for tomorrow, gray skies once again should be rainy, especially in the afternoon, breezy too. Temperatures moving towards 60 degrees. Still holding steady at 54 degrees now in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 506. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by DuckDuckGo, a privacy company committed to making privacy online simple. Used by tens of millions, they offer private search and tracker blocking with one download. DuckDuckGo, privacy simplified. 
On a Monday, it's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. President Joe Biden visited Puerto Rico today with a promise for the many communities damaged by Hurricane Fiona. We came here in person to show that we're with you. All of America is with you as you receive and recover and rebuild. That promise is already drawing comparisons to past disaster responses. NPR's Adrian Florido joins us from Puerto Rico's southern coast, where the president spoke. Adrian, what can you tell us about the president's visit today? Well, Juana, he landed here in the city of Ponce, which is one of the cities that was most damaged by Fiona. He got a briefing from local officials about the state of the island's recovery, and then he came to the main industrial port in Ponce and said that the federal government is committed to make sure that the U.S. territory recovers not only from the damage Fiona left, but also from Hurricane Maria, which hit five years ago. This latest storm dealt a serious blow to all all the hard work that have been done since Maria. Roads and bridges built after Maria have been washed away again. Families who spent their savings to build new homes after losing their last ones have seen them flooded away. The president highlighted the fact that the federal infrastructure bill signed earlier this year uh, includes hundreds of millions of dollars for Puerto Rico, which he said it could use to strengthen its infrastructure against uh, future storms. And Adrian, after Hurricane Maria, Congress passed billions of dollars in recovery funding, but Puerto Rico still has not gotten most of that money. Did the president have anything to say about those delays? He did acknowledge them, and he promised to work to speed that money up. He also pointed out that his administration has lifted the complex restrictions that the Trump administration had placed on some of that aid. Now, how much of a difference this has made, though, is hard to sort out, Juana, because the vast majority of the Maria recovery projects still haven't even broken ground. Mm. Now, President Biden's trip comes five years to the day after former President Trump made a now infamous trip to Puerto Rico after Maria. I have to imagine that was on some people's minds, yeah? It absolutely was. And the Biden administration clearly designed today to contrast with Trump's visit after Maria in 2017. Uh, During that visit, Donald Trump downplayed the severity of the tragedy. He complained about how much it was going to cost the federal government. And he oddly tossed paper towels into a crowd of residents. Many people here thought it was a humiliating experience. Uh, President Biden today struck a respectful tone. But it's worth noting that he did not visit any damaged communities. Before heading out, he, he went to a school where volunteers were coordinating recovery efforts. Okay, and Adrian, what has been the reaction there to President Biden's visit? Well, as is often the case, reaction has been mixed. Uh, Some people are pleased by the attention the president is bringing to Puerto Rico's needs after Fiona. Uh, Others are skeptical his visit will do much at all. After the president spoke, uh, I spoke with uh, José Luis Dalmao. He is the president of Puerto Rico's Senate. Confío en que se van a ejecutar. Ahora que se ejecuten con velocidad. He said he is confident the president is going to fulfill his promises to help Puerto Rico rebuild. But he said the important thing is that the president do so quickly uh, before another storm comes around. Before another storm comes. That is NPR's Adrian Florido. Thank you so much. Thanks, Juana. President Biden is expected to travel to Florida on Wednesday to survey the wreckage left by Hurricane Ian. When the storm hit Fort Myers, the most dramatic damage happened along the waterfront to structures reduced to matchsticks, especially on Fort Myers Beach. A few blocks inland, the scenes are less dramatic, but normal life has still been disrupted. As NPR's Martin Costi reports, residents are preparing for a hard recovery. 
They're using chainsaws on the riverfront here to cut apart the jumble of yachts, powerboats, and chunks of dock. The Caloosahatchee River is the city's northwest border, and if you go a few blocks in, you're in the historically black neighborhood of Dunbar. This storm, it really, it really hit hard. Chedrick Jacobs and his wife Shanika are outside Dunbar High School, where they spent the night in a temporary shelter. Their first floor apartment was flooded, and they can't go back till they hear from the landlord. They're still processing what's happened. You go outside and you see like what it's done to your community, you know, like power lines is down, trees is everywhere. It looked a disaster. The shelter here is closing, so they're being pushed to a county-run shelter in a hockey arena 18 miles south of here. The arena has reliable lights and water, unlike Fort Myers. Shanika says she's seen storms knock out the electricity, but never the water. It just like making me realize how much I need water and power. <laughs> More than anything, I'd rather have water than power for real. <laughs> Most people in the neighborhood are staying put. The modest single-story houses are mostly all standing, but the storm left scars. Lexis Cherry lives in her uncle's house. There's no power, and inside she shows what happens when you open the faucet. Really low pressure, and then they get and they get real low. You see? Water systems experts say low pressure like this may indicate cracks in underground water mains, which could take a while to fix. The water is also a suspicious brown color, and there's a boil water advisory. Back outside, Sherry points out the smell. We also have a problem with the sewage right here, where it's running over. That's what we're smelling outside. That stench seems to have multiple sources. About a mile away, another sewage manhole has erupted with a foul-smelling gusher. All around the neighborhood, people are handing out bottles of water. In this church parking lot, you can get water and a hot meal provided by a private aid group. Inside, the pastor, Dr. William Glover, has just finished a service. If you ask him about the name of his church, Mount Hermon, he says it's a biblical reference to a source of water in ancient Israel. The dew from the mountain caps flows down into their fresh water supply. Ask the pastor if he thinks this community is getting the help it needs. He says he's going to measure his words. On the one hand, I can't say that needs aren't being addressed because I got something set up on my campus addressing those needs. On the other hand, he points out that these are private groups handing out food and water. And eventually, government catches up with that. But uh, communities like this are never really on the first end of feeling the effects of the assistance from the government. Back at Dunbar High School, the bus has finally arrived to take Shedrick and Shanika Jacobs to the shelter in the hockey arena. Despite their situation, Shedrick is positive. I'm getting what I need, and I think other people are getting what they need, too. I think it's been great. Even though for the foreseeable future, he'll be living in a county shelter 18 miles away. And because his car was flooded, he has to find a way to get back here every day for his job as a helper on a garbage truck. He often puts in 60-hour weeks, but he says given the general state of things around here, he's expecting those weeks will get even longer. Martin Costi, NPR News, Fort Myers. And now to Washington, D.C., where the biggest trial so far in the investigation into the attack on the U.S. Capitol is underway. The founder of the Oath Keepers extremist group and four others are charged with seditious conspiracy in connection with January 6th. Jurors heard opening statements today, as did NPR's Ryan Lucas. He's on the line now from the federal courthouse in Washington, D.C. Hi, Ryan. Hi there. 
So there is a lot of interest in this trial. And as I mentioned, you were in the courtroom today. Can you give us a sense of what the scene was like there? So like other January 6th trials, this one is at the federal courthouse just down the street from the Capitol. Uh, But this trial is different in that it is the most significant one so far from January 6th. And it's significant because of who's on trial, uh, five members or associates of the Oath Keepers, uh, including the group's founder, Stuart Rhodes. But it's also significant because these individuals are charged with seditious conspiracy. They're accused of plotting to use force to prevent Joe Biden from taking office. Uh, As for the scene today, people lined up this morning to get into the courtroom. There was enough space for everybody, but the courtroom was full, although they did have the air conditioning cranked up, I have to say, so it is chilly inside. Uh, But to give you a sense of the importance of this case, the head of the Justice Department's National Security Division was in the front row this morning to listen to the government's opening statement. Hmm, interesting. Okay, so what did the government say to open its case for the jury? So Assistant U.S. Attorney Jeffrey Nessler opened for the government. He spoke for uh, just over an hour and 20 minutes, and he began by reminding jurors that the peaceful transfer of power uh, has been a bedrock, he said, of American democracy for more than 200 years. And the five defendants on trial, he said, concocted a plan for an armed rebellion to shatter that bedrock. He called their actions, quote, an attack on the country itself. Now, Nessler used videos and excerpts from text messages and audio recordings to illustrate and try to show the jury how Rhodes and the others conspired. And I'll say, the jury was paying very close attention to those. Most of them were taking notes throughout. Uh, one of the videos showed some of the def- some of the defendants in tactical gear marching in military style up the steps into the Capitol on January 6th. Now, Stuart Rhodes himself did not go in the building. Nestler said Rhodes instead was outside, like a general, he said, organizing, coordinating, and surveying his troops storming the building. Okay, so that's what the prosecution said, Ryan, but what did you hear from the defense today? Well, one of Rhodes's attorneys, Philip Linder, went first, and he urged jurors to keep an open mind. He said Rhodes meant no harm to the Capitol on January 6th, said Rhodes had no violent intent. Linder said that the Oath Keepers are basically uh, a peacekeeping force, he described them. He said they were in D.C. that day to provide security, and he argued that the government has taken videos and texts and audio recordings out of context. He and attorneys for two other defendants, Jessica Watkins and Thomas Caldwell, also pushed back against something that the government has emphasized, and that's a quick reaction force, or QRF. The government says the Oath Keepers had a QRF with guns in Virginia on January 6th, ready to rush into central D.C. if necessary. The defense attorneys say, no, this was not uh, a unit to overthrow the government. It was purely a reactive, purely a defensive force. And Ryan, as we look ahead here, what can we expect next? Well, the jury heard testimony from the first witness today, who was an FBI agent. That's just the beginning. We expect around 40 witnesses in all in the government's uh, case in chief. This trial is expected to last four to six weeks, so we've got a long way to go. NPR's Ryan Lucas, thank you so much. Thank you. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on All Things Considered on WBUR, the Supreme Court hears arguments in a case that involves the scope of the Clean Water Act. That story is coming up next.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet, committed to delivering Internet service over a gig, designed to power your devices while fitting your budget. More at Xfinity.com gig. And Bentley University's Executive Ph.D. in Business, a part-time doctoral program for professionals who want data-driven research skills to solve today's business challenges. First trading day on Wall Street and stocks get a jump start. The Dow surged more than 2.5%, that's 765 points, to close at 29,491. S&P rose more than 2.5% as well to settle at 36.78. The Nasdaq picked up about 2.25%. It closed at 10,815. A Cambridge biotech company is seeking federal approval for a new treatment for muscular dystrophy. Sarepta Therapeutics wants the Food and Drug Administration to approve its gene therapy to treat a fatal form of the disease known as Duchenne muscular dystrophy. Duchenne is one of the most common fatal genetic disorders. It typically appears in children. In the forecast, look for more clouds to finish off the day. They should spend the night as well. Breezy and colder in the mid-40s overnight tonight. Could have some rain tomorrow afternoon with gray skies once again. Breezy and milder, moving towards 60 degrees. Wednesday may be wet, but it could turn sunny and warmer as the week goes on. Red Sox are back home at Fenway Park for the final series of the season. It's against the Tampa Bay Rays. We've won 12 of their 16 matchups with the Sox. Rich Hill throws the first pitch at 7-10. Tyler Glass now for the Rays. This is 90.9 WBUR, 54 degrees now in Boston at 520. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Workday, committed to helping organizations adapt to change using real-time data to uncover insights, stay decision-ready, and prepare for whatever's next the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. And from Fisher Investments. Fisher Investments' team of specialists tailor portfolios to each client's long-term goals. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. Today marked the formal opening of a new Supreme Court term, with the justices back on the bench hearing arguments for the first time since June. For new Justice Katanji Brown-Jackson, it was not a return, but her very first day. And our own Nina Totenberg, NPR legal affairs correspondent, was there too. Hi, Nina. Hi there. So how did things go today? Well, let's jump right in. Uh, At issue in the first case of the day were the 1977 amendments to the Clean Water Act, which Congress passed to strengthen the ability of the EPA to protect the waters of the United States, including wetlands. The case presents an opportunity for the conservative court to dramatically narrow the reach of that law. On one side are property rights advocates backed by business groups, oil, gas, coal, and other industries often associated with pollution. And on the other side are environmental groups and government regulators. The case was brought by a couple who bought a plot of land near Priest Lake in Idaho, planning to build a house. But the EPA told them that they had to get a permit because their land potentially spills pollutants into neighboring wetlands that feed into Priest Lake. Today, much of the argument focused on what it means to be a neighboring wetland. The property owners basically say the the stream doesn't abut their property, so they don't need to get a permit. Okay, so how did that argument go? 
Well, you can't tell for sure in a case like this, but it looks like at least five of the six conservatives were likely to side with the property owners, though Justice Kavanaugh pointed out that the existing regulations have been applied by seven consecutive administrations. And Nina, this was the first time that the court heard from Justice Katanji Brown-Jackson. Were there any big moments for her today? Well, I don't know about big moments, but she was a very active participant. Here, for example, is her opening question to the lawyer for the property owners. I guess my question is, why would Congress uh, draw the coverage line between abutting wetlands and neighboring wetlands when the objective of the statute is to ensure the chemical, physical, and biological integrity of, of the nation's waters? And earlier today, the court also issued a lot of orders, basically dealing with cases that piled up over the summer. Anything in that pile that's of note to you? Well, they rejected most of the cases in the pile, but they the court said that uh, among those that Mike Lindell, the My Pillow man who is a close Trump ally, has to face a 1.3 billion dollar lawsuit brought by, by Dominion Voting Systems. The company is accusing him of promoting false claims that its machines rigged the election. And in another action, the court turned away challenges to a federal ban on devices known as bump stocks that enable semi-automatic weapons to fire like a machine gun. The court did agree to hear a big social media case that could determine whether social media companies can be held financially responsible for the content that they host. Can you tell us a bit about that case? Well, the court said it would hear an appeal that essentially challenges the broad immunity that social media and Internet companies have for material posted online. This case involves the algorithms that YouTube, owned by Google, uses to refer subscribers to similar content. So for people of limited tech ability, like, (laughs) say, me, uh, let me explain it this way. So if you pull up Colbert's monologue on YouTube, to the right on your screen, you'll also see other similar content, probably Jimmy Kimmel and Jimmy Fallon monologues, recommended to you by an algorithm. In this case, YouTube, relying on the same kind of algorithm, referred users to jihadi videos recommended by ISIS. The family of a California woman killed in a terrorist attack in Paris brought suit against YouTube, claiming that the algorithm violated U.S. anti-terrorism laws because ISIS claimed credit for the attack. But YouTube, just like the other content purveyors on your laptop, is protected from lawsuits under a different provision Mm -hmm. of law, of federal law, the Communications Decency Act, passed in 1996 before today's social media explosion. And it says that the content provides that YouTube and other purveyors can't be sued as the publisher or speaker for any information provided by other users. So that's the issue. All right. NPR's Nina Totenberg, thank you as always. Thank you, kiddo. Kim Kardashian has gotten into trouble with the country's top financial cop. She has to pay a fine of more than a million dollars. So what happened? NPR's David Gura joins me. Hey, David. Hey, Mary Louise. Um, Why are regulators going after Kim Kardashian? So today, the Securities and Exchange Commission said a company behind this cryptocurrency called Emacs paid Kim Kardashian a quarter of a million dollars to post about it on Instagram. And while she did include the hashtag ad in that post, Kardashian did not tell her 330 million followers how handsomely she'd been paid for it. 
Now, Gary Gensler, the chair of the SEC, says that hashtag may be sufficient if an influencer is hawking jewelry or clothes. But he told CNBC this morning that if you're touting a cryptocurrency, it is not enough. And the securities laws Congress put in place that you have to disclose not only that you're getting paid, but the amount, nature of it. And this was really to protect the investing public. Mary Louise, the SEC takes this so seriously because cryptocurrencies have attracted so many amateur investors who could lose a lot of money in crypto. Kardashian is not admitting or denying the SEC's findings, but she is forking over the $250,000 she was paid for the post, plus interest, also a million-dollar fine. And she's also agreed not to promote any crypto for the next three years. How did Kim Kardashian, she of the 330 million Instagram followers, how did she come to be promoting crypto anyway? Well, as crypto's popularity has exploded, it's become a rich vein for celebrities. Many crypto companies hired them as part of a multi-million dollar ad blitz. There was Matt Damon in a commercial for Crypto.com during the Super Bowl. Just to put this in perspective, while tens of millions of people watched that game, Kim Kardashian has hundreds of millions of followers on Instagram. But a lot has changed recently. The value of Bitcoin has dropped precipitously. It's the same story with other digital currencies. And now these celebrities are facing a lot of criticism. Well, and these huge fines that have to hurt even if you're a rich celebrity. Are are we going to see more targets? The Biden administration is really interested in cracking down on fraud in crypto. It's pledged to take a more serious look at it. And the SEC says this investigation is ongoing. That Matt Damon ad I mentioned, one securities law expert I spoke with said there is an important distinction here. Kardashian was touting a specific cryptocurrency. Matt Damon was paid to promote a company. Huh. So what is your takeaway from today's settlement? I don't need to tell you this is a big name and created quite a splash, but the SEC has not been shy about saying it's taking crypto seriously because of how many first-time investors are buying it. Elizabeth Goldman used to work at the SEC. Now she's a law professor at Cardozo, where she also works with first-time investors, many of whom she says are poor and have been casualties of this crypto craze. You know, a $1,000 investment might be all the money they have, or $5,000 might be all the money they have. Um, And we are also seeing a fair number of frauds in this space. One of the SEC's core mandates is investor protection. It also said in its announcement today, Mary Louise, it wants to send a message to celebrities making endorsements that they should do more due diligence. That's NPR's David Gura. Thank you, David. Thank you. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Coming up on All Things Considered, more details about Florida Governor Ron DeSantis' migrant relocation flights are coming to light. Meanwhile, lawsuits are moving forward, alleging people on those flights were misled. Red Sox are back home at Fenway Park. They take on the Tampa Bay Rays. Rich Hill throws the first pitch at 7 tonight. Tyler Glasnow for the Rays. And in the forecast, cloudy, windy, chilly overnight tonight, about 45 degrees for a low. Tomorrow we should wake up to clouds that should spend the day. Highs near 60 with some gusty winds and the chance of a shower. It's 5.30. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Beacon Hill Books and Cafe, with programming for book lovers of all ages in a 19th century townhouse in the heart of historic Beacon Hill, now open at 71 Charles Street. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. This is On Point. 
I'm Tiziana Deering. This is Radio Boston. I'm Scott Tong. I'm Robin Young. It's here and now. And I'm Lisa Mullins, host of All Things Considered. We all thank you so much if you made a contribution to our recent fundraiser. And if you haven't had a chance to, you still can. Give monthly at WBUR.org. Thanks. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. President Biden and the First Lady are visiting Puerto Rico to survey the damage wrought by Fiona two weeks ago and five years after Hurricane Maria ravaged the U.S. territory. Puerto Ricans are strong people, but even so, you have had to bear so much and more than need be, and you haven't gotten the help in a timely way. FEMA Administrator Deanne Criswell, accompanying the president, says her agency is making sure that all federal resources are available to residents in need. We have over 900 personnel on the ground uh, dedicated right now specifically to the ongoing efforts for Fiona, in addition to our staff that are continuing to support the recovery efforts from Maria. Biden next heads to Florida on Wednesday, where the confirmed death toll from Hurricane Ian has risen to uh, 94, and some half million customers remain without power. Officials in Ukraine say more than 1,200 children have been killed or wounded in the last seven months of the war. NPR's Jason Bobian reports most children are wounded from missile attacks. Ukraine's prosecutor general says that more than 400 children have died and nearly twice that number have been injured in the fighting. The prosecutor's office says the east of the country has been the most dangerous for kids, with the highest number of casualties in the fiercely contested Donetsk region, followed by the Kharkiv Oblast. Kharkiv, which pushes up against the Russian border, sustained relentless attacks from missiles and field artillery. The aerial bombardment of Kharkiv, however, has eased somewhat since a major Ukrainian counteroffensive there last month. In the same report, the prosecutor general says Russian bombs have hit more than 2,000 schools, completely destroying nearly 300 of them. Jason Bobian, NPR News, Mykolaiv, Ukraine. Wall Street higher by the closing bell. The Dow up 765 points. The Nasdaq up 239. S&P 500 up 92. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Drivers for the food delivery company Cisco are on strike in Plimpton. About 300 unionized workers at Cisco's warehouse there walked off the job Saturday. They want higher pay, better health insurance, and a pension. The company says it's offered pay increases and says the strike is disrupting deliveries to food service companies, including restaurants, schools, and health care facilities. Massachusetts residents who receive benefits through SNAP, or the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, now have more ways to shop for food. The state announced today the beneficiaries can use their SNAP debit cards to buy eligible groceries online at Shaw's and Star Market. More than a dozen other retailers also accept SNAP debit cards online. People traveling today from the Back Bay to Logan Airport have an additional way to get to the airport. Massport relaunched its Back Bay Logan Express service that was halted during the pandemic. Massport's Dan Gallagher says it's an inexpensive and convenient option. So not only is it only $3 to come to the airport and it's free on the way back, but when you, when you come to the airport, you actually get a pass to skip the line at the TSA checkpoint. Tickets can be purchased online or on board the buses. Teachers in the Essex County town of Middleton rallied this afternoon for better wages. Katie Nasser is a visual arts teacher and part of the teachers' union at Middleton Educators Association. She says salaries in her district are sometimes tens of thousands of dollars below those in nearby districts, and that's driving a turnover problem. Since the end of the school year, we've had a quarter of our 
staff, teachers, instructional assistants, administrators leave the district, many of them to go on to positions with higher pay. WBUR has reached out to the Middleton School Committee for comment. It's 534. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballet's My Obsession with Stephen Galloway's Devil's Eye, set to music by the Rolling Stones, October 6th to 16th. Tickets at bostonballet.org. Red Sox finish up the season with a series at Fenway against the Rays. Game one is tonight at 7:10. There's uncertainty at the quarterback position for the Patriots. Rookie third-string quarterback Bailey Zappi led the team yesterday against the Packers with both Mac Jones and backup Brian Hoyer out with injuries. The Pats lost in overtime 27-24. Coach Bill Belichick says that Zappi was prepared and handled himself well when Hoyer had to leave the game. Belichick isn't saying whether the team will look to add another quarterback. We'll evaluate things um, going forward and see what see where things stand. I don't know. I mean, today, today's kind of the day to, you know, reassess things and uh, figure things out, you know, talk to our medical staff. Belichick has no updates today on the condition of Jones or Hoyer. Rough seas are forcing them some disruptions to ferry service between Cape Cod and Martha's Vineyard. The Steamship Authority says it's diverted eight trips today that were scheduled to and from Oak Bluffs uh, to nearby Vineyard Haven. In the forecast, pretty windy through the night tonight. Chilly, about 45 for a low. Tomorrow, clouds through the day. Highs near 60. Gusty winds with a chance of showers as well. Still 54 degrees now in Boston. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Clavio, an email and SMS platform designed to bring all customer data into one place with e-commerce integrations to help drive revenue at K-L-A-V-I-Y-O dot com slash N-P-R. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of any size to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. More at Indeed.com slash N-P-R. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. Russian men of fighting age keep streaming into Turkey. It's a sign of the dissatisfaction with Russia's call-up of more men to fight in the war in Ukraine to stem battlefield losses. The exodus can be felt acutely in Antalya, a Mediterranean city in southern Turkey, with a long history of Russian tourism, now turning into something else. NPR's Fatma Tanis went there and has this report. Between the Mediterranean Sea and the steep mountains surrounding Antalya is a small park known to locals as Matryoshka Park for the large sculpture of the Russian Matryoshka nesting dolls, half of which are missing after vandals destroyed them when Russia invaded Ukraine. This area is known to attract Russian tourists, and now those who are escaping the country Russian is the main language heard in the streets and is on signs all around. I meet two young men in their mid-twenties, wandering around the park in backpacks. They don't give their names, fearing retribution from the Russian government. They've come here over a week ago from Kazan, in the semi-autonomous region of Tatarstan in southwest Russia. One of them tells me why. It's dangerous for any male. Dangerous for any male because, as ethnic minorities, they've heard that Russia's new conscription of troops falls heavily on people like them. They know many friends who got rounded up, despite, as his friend says, This is a war of our government. This is not a war of uh, Russian people. And this is a disgusting uh, situation. 
follow us. Even though they left the country immediately after the announcement of the mobilization almost two weeks ago, they both are still feeling lost in Turkey without family and no future plans. Need solve problems about how to live in Antalya or in our countries. There are other complications, too. With the influx of Russians since the war started, residency laws are getting tighter, making it harder to live and work here. Another issue, money. After recent pressure from the West, Turkish banks suspended the Russian version of MasterCard and Visa, which makes it harder for them to get currency or even pay the tab at restaurants. But one thing is certain for these men. Do you think you can ever go back to Russia? No, I suppose I don't want to go back to Russia. Meanwhile, at Antalya's airport, Russians continue to fly in. Many are tourists. But there are also a lot of men who've come alone, fleeing conscription. The governor of the province has said up to 19,000 Russians are coming in every day. He said some come as tourists but then decide to stay. And flights to Russia now are going back half as empty as they came. One 34-year-old man from Moscow steps out of the terminal with just a backpack. He doesn't want to give his name, but says he bought a ticket a few days after the mobilization, spending several thousand dollars and leaving in a rush. Did you have to leave your job? Uh, well, technically I didn't leave yet, so they don't know that I went here. <laughs> Tomorrow when we have Skype call, I'm going to surprise them. Like all the other men of fighting age who've tried to leave, he was questioned by authorities at the airport in Moscow. I saw a couple of people who were diverted from the flow and uh, took to some uh, separate room. Somehow have a feeling they were not allowed to leave. Unlike many others I spoke with who don't think they can go back to Russia ever again, this man says he will if Russia loses the war. Because we have to rebuild. We have to vote for new people who will choose a different way. And hopefully, I don't know, maybe when I am old, the one choice he could make now, he says, is to leave and not be forced to kill people in a war he doesn't believe in. Fatma Tanis, NPR News, Antalya, Turkey. We are learning more about the flights that relocated almost 50 Venezuelan migrants from Texas to Martha's Vineyard. Migrants who were on those flights last month have filed a lawsuit alleging they were misled. And that is not the only legal question surrounding the incident. And Pierre's Joel Rose is following all this. Hey, Joel. Hey, Mary Louise. Start with new information about one of the key players in this story. Who is it? What do we need to know? Yeah, this is about a woman known as Perla. Several migrants told NPR that she approached them outside a shelter in San Antonio and lured them into boarding these planes with promises of expedited work permits and jobs. Migrants say she identified herself only as Perla and didn't give out her last name. Now the New York Times and CNN are reporting that her name is Perla Huerta, that she spent two decades in the U.S. Army serving as a combat medic and counterintelligence agent and now lives in Florida. NPR has not independently confirmed this. However, we have tried repeatedly to reach Perla Huerta, both on the phone and at her home in Tampa, but have not been successful. Intriguing. Okay. Meanwhile, have we learned more about how these flights were actually organized? We know they were paid for by the state of Florida out of a $12 million fund created by the legislature earlier this year. And we know that the state has paid more than $1.5 million to an aviation company called Vertol Systems. It's not clear why the state chose Vertol, 
but the company's owner has donated money to Republican candidates in the past. And as far as how Perla fits in, who hired her and why, those are still unanswered questions. Okay. Um, we also know these flights are the subject of a criminal investigation. There are at least two lawsuits out there. What can you tell us about those? Yeah, the criminal investigation is by the sheriff in San Antonio. That is still ongoing. As for the civil lawsuits, one was filed by a nonprofit advocacy group called Lawyers for Civil Rights, which represents several dozen of the migrants. And that complaint is probably the best window we have into how the flights worked. According to the lawsuit, Perla essentially tried to win migrants' trust with $10 McDonald's gift cards and free hotel rooms. The migrants thought they were going to Boston or Washington, D.C., and only found out they'd been misled when they landed instead on Martha's Vineyard. The lawsuit also alleges that the migrants were given fake brochures, promising them cash benefits and other assistance in Massachusetts, benefits that are only available to people who are formally designated as refugees, which these migrants were not. Right. But Florida Governor Ron DeSantis has defended the flight, saying the migrants signed waivers and flew voluntarily. His spokeswoman said the migrants were, quote, homeless, hungry, and abandoned, unquote, in Texas. And he accuses immigrant advocates of using the migrants for political theater. Okay. And I think you told us about one lawsuit. I mentioned there's another one. This one's filed by a Florida state senator. That's right. State senator from South Florida, a Democrat named Jason Pizzo, who argues that the migrant flights are a misuse of state funds. The legislature approved $12 million to, quote, facilitate the transport of unauthorized aliens from this state consistent with federal law, unquote. However, these migrants were transported from Texas to Massachusetts, and Pizzo argues that's not what the legislature authorized when it approved this money. Again, DeSantis has defended the flights and promised to spend every penny the legislature gave him. And DeSantis argues he's already succeeded in drawing attention to the southern border, which was his goal because it's seen a record number of migrant apprehensions last year. And PR's Joel Rose, thanks for your reporting on this. You're welcome. Listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. A damning new report out today finds this country's most prominent women's pro soccer league has been plagued by systemic abuse, both emotional and sexual. It also found abusive coach behavior was often ignored and unpunished. NPR's Tom Goldman has more on a year-long independent investigation into allegations within the National Women's Soccer League. Hi there, Tom. Hi, Juana. Tell us a little bit more about what kicked off this investigation. Well, pretty much a a major story in The Athletic from a year ago uh, focused on abuse allegations against Paul Riley, a very successful former coach in the NWSL, National Women's Soccer League. And this prompted the U.S. Soccer Federation to commission the independent investigation led by former acting U.S. Attorney General Sally Yates. She found systemic abuse of players spanning multiple teams, coaches, and victims. She said she 
he and other investigators repeatedly heard about, quote, relentless degrading tirades by coaches, manipulation that was about power, not improving performance, and retaliation against those who tried to come forward. Stories of sexual misconduct ranged from coaches making sexually charged comments to coercive sexual intercourse. And this behavior was allegedly allowed to go on just unchecked? Yeah, the report says it was from the time the NWSL was founded in 2012. NWSL teams, the league, and the U.S. Soccer Federation failed to put in place basic measures for player safety. Those entities also failed to adequately address reports and evidence of misconduct. And one of something we've heard before in these sports abuse scandals, abusive coaches moved from team to team and even to the U.S. Federation. And the report says these moves were quote, laundered by press releases thanking them for their service and positive references from teams that minimized or even concealed misconduct. Those at the NWSL and U.S. Uh, Soccer Federation in position to correct the record stayed silent and no one at the teams, the league or the federation demanded better of coaches. Hmm. And some of these problems, Tom, they're not just confined to the NWSL, right? Right. And, you know, that's a, a, a an important part of this. Many of the women who were abused are some of the country's best athletes, including members of the U.S. Women's National Team. But the report says abuse in women's professional leagues appears rooted in youth soccer. Uh, speaking to reporters today, Ye- Yates said there should be an expedited focus on what's happening in the youth game. To take a look at what the protections are that are in place and to to take steps to enhance those protections and then also deal with the accountability side of those who have have perpetrated misconduct. And Tom, did Yates talk about other recommendations for dealing with these problems? Uh, she did. And so did Cindy Parlow Cohn, president of the U.S. Soccer Federation. She also spoke to reporters today, calling the findings heartbreaking and infuriating. She also thanked the players, the many players who, in her words, bravely spoke about their abuse, which has set in motion the process to drive change. Now, Parlow Cohn says some of the immediate steps U.S. soccer is taking include establishing a new office of player safety, publishing records to publicly identify individuals who've been disciplined suspended or banned, and mandating a uniform level for background checks. She also talked about other steps as well to take a look at soccer's ecosystem in this country. NPR sports correspondent Tom Goldman, thank you. You're welcome, Juana. Thanks for listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up on WBUR is All Things Considered. A new archive is digitizing old cassette tapes from Syria to preserve a treasure of music in the country. That story is just ahead. Clouds should spend the night tonight, breezy and colder in the mid-40s overnight. Could have some rain tomorrow afternoon with gray skies once again. Breezy, a little bit milder, moving towards 60. Wednesday may be wet, but it should turn sunny and warmer as the week goes on. Chilly night for the Fenway faithful. Red Sox open up their final series at 7-10 tonight against the Tampa Bay Rays. Rich Hill takes the mound tonight against Tyler Glasnow. The series and the regular season end on Wednesday. 54 degrees now in the Boston area under cloudy skies. The time is 5.49. Women across Iran have taken to the streets after the death of a young woman in police custody. Their government says it will mercilessly confront them. Dozens have been killed. Neither side is backing down. 
What's next for the women of Iran and the regime? I'm Kimberly Atkins Store. That's on point tonight at 7 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. When Yaman Mehdad was a teenager in Damascus, Syria, there was one place he'd go almost every day, his friend Mazan's cassette shop. So just sit with him, hang out with him, smoke cigarettes, and then just listen to the new music, punk music or like Gregorians or stuff like this. So it was always like a trip to explore the unknown for me. This was in the 90s when cassette shops were all over Syria. They really acted as a place for people who were curious and wanted to tap into uh, music that wasn't the state narrative music or what was not allowed or what we lacked access to. At the same time, unbeknownst to Mehdad, someone else was also falling in love with Syrian cassette culture. On every populated street in town, you'd find cassette kiosks. Mark Georges grew up in the States, but his family is from Iraq. In the 90s, he began to rediscover the Arabic music from his childhood, which brought him to Syria and its multitude of music kiosks. And they'd often just be blaring that week's popular tape at full volume, just, just next to another cart whose owner would have his favorite tape of the week blaring at an even greater volume. So it was this beautiful cacophony. Two decades later, in 2018, Georges and Mehdad met. They began to digitize their old cassette tapes to try to preserve that era of music, especially as the Civil War scattered Syrian culture. Now their collection is living online and growing. It's called the Syrian Cassette Archives. It spans decades of cassette production in the country and a broad range of genres, like shabby music. Uh, Shabi music is basically folk pop around Syria due to its diversity. There's more than 20 different ethnic and religious groups uh, in, in Syria with their own local traditions that go back for thousands of years. This type of music didn't get access to the, to the mainstream. So folk pop is, or shabi is the type of sound that was popular in different parts of Syria. So you'll have a Hawrani shabi, you'll have a Syriani shabi, a Kurdish shabi, you know. For instance, Wafiq Habib, who is, who is still quite a famous uh, Syrian shabi uh, folk pop singer. The nature of these tapes, they were like business cards for, for the musicians. Um, they sort of kept their name alive so that they could perform. By having visibility on the shelf uh, at the bus stops or at the kiosks, uh, that singer would continue to get, get calls to, be, to perform at weddings and celebrations. By making this a Syrian cassette archive, you zero in on a period in time. What is it about the cassette specifically? I think specifically in the Global South, uh, the cassette medium just democratized the process even more so than the rest of the world due to um, the complexity of producing records and vinyl records. So, in, for example, in Syria, there was no pressing plant. So for you to reach a level where you can press a record, you have to be an artist that reached a prestigious level. When cassettes were introduced in the 70s, that changed the game. A lot of these musicians were functional musicians. They would perform in weddings and festivals locally. 
But then when the cassettes were introduced, they were able to record in a DIY setup their sound and distribute it outside of their region. So that's what's really special about the cassettes, if, uh, in my opinion. The city of Aleppo specifically has been a melting pot for centuries, right along the Silk Road, and the influences from all over the world are reflected in the food, in the architecture. A lot of the music in your collection comes from Aleppo. Do we hear that kind of global melting pot here? Aleppo was was the primary hotbed for cassette production companies. Um, we, we can hardly count the number of them that came and went, and some endured for decades. But after 2011, you know, some of these longstanding music companies disappeared overnight. When the Civil War uh, began, yeah. Exactly. And in our research, we've located a few of them and a few of the owners or even the next of kin, but many remain untraceable. A lot of our cassettes do come from Aleppo, even though maybe they were featuring music from the Kurds or music from uh, northeastern Syria. The centralized location for the production was in Aleppo. Aleppo it has a huge role in shaping up classical Arabic music, and there was a rite of passage to go through Aleppo and to prove to the Samia, the term goes, the, the avid listeners, to get their you know blessing. If you can make it in Aleppo, you can make it anywhere. Exactly, definitely. Does Aleppo have a signature sound? Of course. The most recent superstar of that that managed to globalize the sound is Sabah Fakhri. It's a wonderful type of singing uh, and uh, composition that goes back for more than a thousand years. What makes this so special, so significant? I think it's it's a personal thing that like, depends on how you hear it, but to me it's just an unbelievably beautiful song. It's a poem that was rearranged uh, with the work of Sabah Fakhri and his band. So these are ancient lyrics set to an original melody? Yes, set to original melody, but rearranged to a contemporary, you know, uh, big band. It's really hard to talk about the rich diversity, the beauty of Aleppo without thinking of how devastated it was by the Syrian civil war. This would be a historical archive of great value even if the war had not happened. But how do you think of it in the context of what's been lost? I mean, the idea for an archival project came during the horror of watching from afar as Syria fell into war and destruction after 2011 and, and learning of friends and contacts, you know, suffering un, unthinkable trauma and displacement, even death. So I started looking at, at the, the cassettes that I had from Syria with new eyes. The collection had taken on an unfortunate new gravity. The stories behind that era and the tapes and the, the makers behind them also had such a largely undocumented narrative. We really felt that it was time to focus on them. And our hope is that the project can help preserve the memory of this era and add to the conversations around the, the musical history that, that we don't feel should be uh, forgotten or overlooked by any means. Yaman, when the Damascus that you grew up in is forever changed and the Damascus you remember is gone, what value does that add to a collection like this? Yeah, definitely forever changed. I was in Damascus actually two months ago for like quite some time, for like 40 days. Definitely things have changed. Definitely things are extremely hard at the moment, especially economically due to sanctions and government policies and so on. But, you know, like the magical thing about that place that people always persevere and they still do their thing. And within all this you know, horror, they are still creating and loving and believing, you know, so... It's there and people are still making stuff and producing stuff against all odds. So it's always refreshing to see that and, and to be a small part of it somehow. So um, it's a two sides to it, basically. The archiving aspect where we're preserving, but also how can we 
push forward and engage and, and stay alive and, and dream of how this can still be part of our future identity somehow. Yaman Mehdad and Mark Jurgis. You can visit the Syrian Cassette Archives at syriancassettearchives.org. Thank you both. Thank you very much. Thank you, Adi. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Culligan Water since 1936, committed to providing cleaner and safer filtered water on demand while working to help reduce the number of plastic bottles going into landfills. Learn more at Culligan.com. And from Progressive Insurance with Snapshot, which monitors safe driving habits to determine a personalized rate at Progressive.com. Not available in California and North Carolina, or from all agents. And from Jepigo, part of Johns Hopkins, and dedicated to saving lives, improving health, and transforming the future of women. Their name is challenging, but so is their work at jhpiego.org. This is 90.9 WBUR. The forecast staying breezy and raw overnight tonight, down around 45 degrees for a low. For tomorrow, should be overcast once again. Windy, a little bit warmer, up around 60 degrees. One more day of clouds on Wednesday with some rain as well before things finally dry up, at least they should from this perspective at the end of the work week. May not be able to tell, but given the cloud cover out there, but sunset in Boston is tonight at 622. Tomorrow's sunrise is 645. Tonight on Marketplace, as the holiday shopping season draws near, consumer surveys suggest that shoppers are planning to spend less. We'll see what that means for retailers coming up tonight on Marketplace at 630. I'm WBUR City Space Director Amy McDonald, and this is 90.9 WBUR FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH Booster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The war in Ukraine is not going well for Russia, but one American diplomat says there may be face-saving ways for Vladimir Putin to end the conflict. If he did say, okay, I'm done, let me have Donbass and Crimea, the places I was basically controlling before, a lot of leaders around the world might support him. It's Monday, October 3rd, and this is All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. We'll hear from a former U.S. ambassador to Russia coming up. Hurricanes are growing stronger and more frequent due to climate change, and they're doing more damage. We'll take a look at how cities can be more resilient in the face of future storms. The latest in Hidden Brain's Unsung Hero series. A therapist remembers what happened when she was the one who needed to unload. Also, Wall Street surges today. We'll get the latest coming up. It's 6.01. News headlines are next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Florida Power and Light says it has 21,000 people out working to restore power to storm-stricken areas of the state, but it will take until Friday to finish the job around Fort Myers. More from NPR's Martin Costi. Fort Myers is in Lee County, where more than half of power customers are still waiting. Tavares Schley lives in the historically black neighborhood of Dunbar, and he's been cooking outside. Yeah, we ain't got no choice, man, but the grill. We, we ain't got no power, you know. Tap water is down to a trickle, and it's not safe to drink, so volunteers have been passing out bottled water throughout the city. 
Shai says even though this part of Fort Myers fared better than the beachfront, there's still a lot to do. What we're trying to do is come together as a neighborhood, start cleaning up before the city get here because it's going to be a couple of days, maybe weeks, before the city get over here, you know. Martin Costi, NPR News. Fort Myers. The Supreme Court is weighing arguments in a major environmental case that could limit the scope of the Clean Water Act. NPR's Nathan Rott reports a ruling by the court's conservative majority could shrink the number of waterways in the U.S. that get federal protections. The Clean Water Act tasks federal agencies with protecting U.S. waterways. For decades, though, there have been disputes about just which waterways that means, with conservatives, ranchers, and developers arguing it only applies to large waterways like big rivers and lakes, and environmental groups, scientists, and Democratic administrations arguing it also includes the smaller wetlands and streams that feed into those bigger systems. The Supreme Court has weighed in on this issue before, and environmental groups are concerned that the court's conservative majority is inclined to decide in favor of a more permissive Clean Water Act. The court is expected to rule early next year. Nathan Rott, NPR News. The director general of Ukraine's Zaporizhia nuclear power plant has been released from Russian detention. That's according to the head of the International Atomic Energy Agency. NPR's Kat Lonsdorf has more. The director general, Ihor Murashov, had been stopped by a Russian patrol blindfolded and driven to an unknown location while on his way from the plant to the nearby town of Enerhodar, both of which are occupied by Russia. Since then, many had come out calling for his safe release, saying that he was vital to nuclear safety and security at the power plant. In a tweet, U.N. nuclear watchdog Chief Rafael Grossi confirmed that Murashov was safely returned to his family. Russia has been occupying the plant and the surrounding area since March, and reports have indicated possible abuse and even torture of its Ukrainian staff. Kat Lonsdorf, NPR News, Dnipro, Ukraine. The British government is backing off a proposal to enact unfunded tax cuts for wealthier individuals, the initial announcement of the planted roiled financial markets. Today, the country's Treasury chief announced he would abandon plans to scrap the 45% tax rate on earnings above £150,000 a year. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good evening, I'm Lisa Mullins. Unionized graduate students are on strike at Clark University in Worcester. The union that represents students who teach and do research for the school says the goal of the strike is to demand higher wages, affordable health care, and better working conditions. The students voted to unionize back in April. Clark administrators say they're disappointed the students have chosen to strike rather than focus on negotiations with the school. The Bristol County Sheriff's Office says it was closely monitoring a man who died by an apparent suicide in a jail cell yesterday. 34-year-old Adam Howe faced charges of killing his mother and burning her body in Truro. WBR's Deborah Becker reports. Prosecutors say Adam Howe was taken into custody Friday night when police responded to his mother's Truro home. Cape and Islands District Attorney Michael O'Keefe says police found Howe in the yard of the home near the burning body of his mother, Susan Howe. Prosecutors requested a mental health evaluation because Howe expressed suicidal thoughts. He was taken to the Ash Street Jail in New Bedford Saturday and was found unresponsive in his cell the next day. A statement from the sheriff's office says Howe was on security watch and visually checked every 15 minutes. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Deborah Becker. Gas prices continued to drop in Massachusetts despite an uptick across the nation. The price of regular unleaded in the state is now $3.49 a gallon. That's eight cents lower than it was a week ago, 46 cents lower than a month ago. AAA spokesman Mark Shieldrop says the downward trend should continue. 
I think motorists should expect continued gas price declines in the coming weeks. The main issue right now that we're looking at is that demand is just not there. Demand is at recession levels. Shieldrop says the increase in gas prices nationally is largely attributable to higher prices in California. He says that state is dealing with a near-record shortage of gasoline inventory. Massachusetts lawmakers will ask the State Department of Public Utilities to defend its oversight of MBTA safety later this week. A joint legislative committee has called for a hearing for Thursday. It will review the department's formal response to a federal transit administration's investigation of the T. The federal review found that the Department of Public Utilities provides lack supervision of the T and that the transit system is understaffed and behind on maintenance. And Lawrence Municipal Airport is receiving federal money to support a new construction project. The U.S. Department of Transportation has awarded nearly $9 million to the airport. It will go to build a new taxiway. In the forecast, cloudy, windy, and raw tonight. In the mid-40s overnight, tomorrow gray all day. Maybe some showers up around 60 tops. Still 54 degrees now in Boston at 607. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Huntington Theater. It's back. Join them October 10th for the open house and ribbon-cutting ceremony. RSVP at HuntingtonTheater.org slash reopening. And Jarl and Pamela Moon, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. If you are following events in Russia and Ukraine closely, you could be forgiven for wondering if Vladimir Putin has backed himself into a corner. Many thousands of Russians are fleeing the country, trying to avoid being drafted to fight in the war. Phony so-called elections in four Ukrainian provinces, provinces which Russia now says it has annexed, are being mocked in capitals around the world. And on the battlefield, Ukraine keeps winning. So where does all this leave Putin? What cards does he still hold? Questions I want to put now to Michael McFall. He served as U.S. ambassador to Russia from 2012 to 2014 and now is the director of the Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies at Stanford University. Ambassador, great to speak with you. Thanks for having me. Over the weekend, you tweeted this, quote, Putin needs to cut his losses before it's too late. Explain. Well, the conventional wisdom out there, including analysts in our country and around the world, is that Putin can accept defeat. He will double down. He'll fight to the end. He might even use nuclear weapons. I've known Putin for a long time, written about him for decades. Uh, That would be my prediction, too. And most certainly, he is doubling down now, right? He's not retreating. He's trying to mobilize 300,000 soldiers, and he's up the ante by annexing territory the size of Portugal. And just let's be clear, this this is really unprecedented. This is a more aggressive Vladimir Putin than we were watching even six months ago. Exactly. But that doesn't mean he'll be successful. And what I was trying to say in that tweet, if he was rational, he might think about cutting his losses but, but tragically, and I say this, I want to emphasize that word, tragically, if he did say, okay, I'm done, let me have Donbass and Crimea, the places I was basically controlling before, I think there would be a lot of leaders around the world that might support him. Uh, that would be a face-saving way out. It's not my prediction, uh, but it would be a different way out than just fighting forever. Do we know if Putin understands how badly things are going for Russia and Ukraine? That's a great question. And I don't have a great answer. I know from past experience, and most certainly in the run-up to the initial invasion decision, 
that he had bad information. By the way, he's had bad information for a long time. Even when I was ambassador, we used to write cables back to Washington talking about how small his inner circle is, and he doesn't listen to anybody. That was a long time ago, gotten worse, especially during COVID. What I don't know, has he corrected for that uh, right now? I would not say there's any evidence to suggest that he has. Um, In terms of what other things might influence how things play out, what signs are you watching for as to whether there may be any cracks, any fissures emerging among Putin's inner circle? I mean, it's one thing to have pressure from below to have people protesting or hopping on planes to flee the country. What about at the top? You're seeing signs. Uh, They're small signs. We shouldn't exaggerate them. But I'm struck by how much just in the last 48 hours it's happened. So this guy Kadyrov, he's the leader of Chechnya. He's a very nasty, horrible person, you know, but a strong man who brought law and order to Chechnya. He is now criticizing they've lost the war. They have to fight harder. Mr. Prigozhin, who he runs a group called the Wagner Group, a private paramilitary operation with forces fighting in Ukraine. He said something even worse, like the general should be thrown to the front lines and, and be killed. Uh, you see it on the television shows. I, I, you know, I watched these shows from time to time to get a feel for the mood and they're, they're lamenting what's happening. And if that's what's being said in public, I can only imagine what's being said privately by elites in Moscow today. Interesting. So let's end on a note of hope. Um, I want to ask about one other thing that you tweeted over the weekend, which was that, yes, there's a whole lot of bad news in the world today, but that people in two countries, in Iran and in Ukraine, are giving you hope. I want you to describe what you see that caused you to write that. Well, you know, we've been in a 15 or 16 year global recession uh, with respect to democracy. And you look around the world and you don't see, you know, when will this end? I feel like it's ending in Ukraine because, you know, let's be clear, President Zelensky and the incredible warriors of Ukraine and the society there, they are fighting to defend their democracy against an invading dictatorship and they're winning. It's not to say they'll win in the long run, but it feels hopeful. When I talk to Ukrainians, it feels hopeful. And same in Iran, another country I've been following for for many decades. We've had episodic explosions of nonviolent civic resistance, usually led by women, by the way, and in this case, most certainly led by women. I don't know how it ends, but when brave people stand up for what they believe in, you have to be inspired. Michael McFall, he is former U.S. ambassador to Russia, now a professor at Stanford. Ambassador, thank you. Thanks for having me. As if Hurricane Ian didn't cause enough damage, hurricanes are only growing stronger and more frequent due to climate change. Same with other mass flooding events. So how can communities better protect themselves from rising waters? Well, to help us answer that question, I talked earlier with Brett Sanders. He's a professor of civil engineering at the University of California, Irvine, and he specializes in urban flooding. And I started by asking him, Are we seeing storm damage more often now? And if so, why? We're seeing storm damage increase uh, geometric rates. And the reason is, is several fold. First of all, people are increasingly moving into cities. And in the US, they're moving more and more to coastal cities. And so we're seeing more and more of the population concentrated in areas that could be impacted you know, by, a, by a storm and by a flood. Mm. And that's pressured cities to 
build in areas that historically weren't used to have housing and to have infrastructure. So it put more people in harm's way. Another really important reason is that as these cities get bigger and bigger, rainfall that, that comes down out of the sky, and as you mentioned, um, our warmer atmosphere is holding more and more moisture. This rainfall is hitting more and more concrete and more and more built surfaces, and it's just running off really quickly and putting a lot of people at risk of this rainfall-driven flooding. Wow, that's so interesting. Well, with these growing cities in coastal flood-prone areas, I mean, I'm curious, on a scale of 1 to 10, how would you grade the flood resiliency in those areas? Well, we've seen on a scale of 1 to 10, maybe a 5. We've, <laughs> wow. we've, we can do much better. Yeah. So far, we haven't been successful in the U.S., building structures that are ready to tolerate the floods of this next century. Okay, so when it comes to building more flood-tolerant infrastructure, what are the first things that local governments should do to address that? The, the first thing that they need to do is map out the areas most at risk, understand areas where there should be no more building. Those are areas where we need to, to seriously consider stepping back, getting out of harm's way, leaving room for nature. Secondly, in the areas where we can tolerate some flooding, we need to make sure that the structures we put there are going to hold up against the storm. And we can do that with new building codes, land use at the local level, and so on. And lastly, across urban areas, we need to make more room for water to move. We need channels and flowways and green spaces that can create space for these big rainfall events mm, to drain. Right. And at the same time, it's a huge opportunity because these green spaces create a more livable city. Yeah. Well, now that we're all seeing the damage in Florida from Hurricane Ian and the Carolinas, if you had the ear of every urban planner in the Southeast right now, what would you tell them? Reimagine what your city could look like in the future in a more resilient form. How can we use our land most effectively, creating space for the environment, space for our communities to thrive, a more livable city? This is an opportunity to reset for a safe future. Uh, we simply can't afford to rebuild like we were before. That's a recipe to have one disaster after another. After these events, a lot of federal money becomes available to help communities do precisely this. Mm -hmm. Major investments in infrastructure, in waterways, in, in, in drainage systems. So if those resources are used effectively, this can be an incredible opportunity for coastal communities to grow in the future. That is Brett Sanders, professor of civil engineering at the University of California, Irvine. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Just days into his new job last month, Britain's finance minister announced a series of tax proposals that would usher in what he called a new economic era for Britain. That plan prompted a major sell-off in the country's currency and its government debt, causing havoc for UK pension funds and mortgage lenders alike. But the finance minister and his boss, Prime Minister Liz Truss, refused to back down until today, as Willem Marx reports. Finance Minister Kwasi Kwarteng has changed direction by cancelling an element of his plans that would have seen the country's highest earners enjoy a 5% cut to their tax burden. A small part of a much larger financial stimulus package, it had proved politically unpalatable, with the wealthiest retaining more of their wages as the country's poorest are seeing their pay struggle to keep up with spiralling inflation. Nevertheless, Liz Truss appeared on a top political talk show Sunday morning and was asked by the BBC's Laura Koonsberg if she was still absolutely committed to abolishing the top tax rate for the UK's wealthiest people. Yes, and it is part, Laura, it is part of an overall package mm -hmm. of making our tax system simpler 
and lower. Last month, it was markets reacting badly to the unusual dearth of details in the government's overall proposals. Since then, it's been members of Truss's own Conservative Party bashing the top tax rate idea. One senior former minister called it a, quote, display of the wrong values. Even so, last night, a pre-released version of Kwarteng's planned speech to the annual Conservative Party conference included an urge to, quote, stay the course on his tax-cutting plans. This morning, he performed what Britain's political press likes to call a screeching U-turn. During a radio interview, he said he would no longer cut that top rate of tax. My job is simply to deliver a, an ambitious set of policies, and I'm very proud of that. And I've listened on the 45p rate. I think it was a huge distraction on uh, the growth plan. And that's why I've decided not to proceed with its abolition. This climb down constitutes a major challenge to the stability of Truss's new government, showing critics both inside her own party and among her opponents that she can succumb to pressure, public or parliamentary. For NPR News, I'm Villa Marks in London. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up, a rare example of library patrons in Texas pushing back against the removal of certain books from the shelves, including children's books. First day of trading of the month on Wall Street and stocks get a jump start. The Dow surged more than 2.5%. That's 765 points to close at 29,491. S&P rose more than 2.5% as well to settle at 36.78. The Nasdaq picked up about 2.25% to close at 10,815. It's 619. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Ceres, a nonprofit tackling the world's biggest sustainability challenges, like the climate and water crises. Learn more at ceres.org slash WBUR. And Bentley University, where students learn the power of good business and how it can make the world a better place. Bentley University, a force for business, a force for good. AstraZeneca's Boston-based rare diseases unit Alexion is acquiring Lexington-based Logic Bio. The purchase price is about $68 million. Logic Bio is a genetic medicine company that uses genome editing to treat rare diseases in children and adults. AstraZeneca hopes to close the deal in four to six weeks. No Logic Bio employees are expected to lose their jobs. In the forecast, cloudy, windy, chilly overnight tonight, about 45 degrees for low. Tomorrow we should wake up to clouds. They should spend the day, in fact, highs about 60. Gusty winds, the chance of showers. Look for more clouds on Wednesday, more rain as well. Just about 60 degrees once again. Should have some sunshine as the work week comes to an end. Still holding steady at 54 degrees now in the Boston area. This is 90.9 WBUR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. The free expression group PEN America reports more library books have been banned in Texas than any other state. In a rare lawsuit on the matter, a group of angry library patrons in one small Texas town has gone to court over book removals. NPR's John Burnett has more. A year ago, the government of Llano County, about an hour northwest of Austin, started pulling books it found objectionable from its three public libraries. By the time the purge was over, 17 titles were gone, including Maurice Sendak's award-winning In the Night Kitchen. Ray Bradbury once said, uh, there's more than one way to burn a book, and the world is full of people running around with matches. Do you feel like that's going on in Lano County? Yeah, it's a scary time when people are trying to get rid of books from public institutions. 
Leela Green Little is the lead plaintiff in a federal lawsuit against Llano County that contends the government cannot dictate which books patrons can and cannot read. It all began with three children's books, My Butt is So Noisy, I Broke My Butt, and I Need a New Butt, because the books contained illustrations of bare bottoms, a handful of outraged citizens in Llano called them, quote, pornographic filth. The author, Dawn McMillan, emailed NPR from her home in New Zealand, I wrote the butt books for fun with no intention to offend anyone and with no agenda of any kind. They're silly stories bringing laughs while getting kids, especially boys, into reading. One of the co-plaintiffs is Jeannie Preer, a 76-year-old retired clerical worker who votes Republican. I just think it's censorship, pure and simple. Preer says she used to check out kids' books to read to her grandchildren, and she was curious why the new banned books were considered so offensive. Because I wanted to see what was so bad about them. And frankly, I, I couldn't find anything. The butt books and the, the farting books, I mean... It's a fact of life. Kids find it funny. None of the defendants or their attorney agreed to interviews for this story. In its reply to the lawsuit, the county contends that a public library has, quote, broad discretion to decide what material to provide to their patrons and that the First Amendment does not apply. We're not saying to get rid of the books and burn them, you know. This isn't Nazism or something where you're going to get rid of them. Stacy Nobles is pastor of the Llano Cowboy Church. He wrote a letter to the local newspaper supporting the book removals. He's drinking coffee in a local cafe. Nobody banned him. What they said was, this is not appropriate for the children's section of books. If mom or dad want the child to be able to read that book, then mom and dad can check it out and hand it to the child. The county says the lawsuit is, quote, hyperbolic and absurd because the books at issue, while not in the stacks, are still available through interlibrary loan, an online book database, or by special request at the checkout desk. The furor began over books in the children's section, but plaintiff Leela Green Little says the kids' books were just the beginning. This isn't just Maurice Sendak books and the quote-unquote butt books being taken off the shelves. There's other books, you know, that are not targeted towards children that um, this group of citizen censors has had pulled off the shelves. In addition to children's books, four highly regarded and awarded books for adults and young adults came off the Lano Library shelves. They are Being Jazz, My Life as a Transgender Teen, Spinning, a book about a young figure skater who comes out, Cast, The Origins of Our Discontents, and They Called Themselves the KKK, The Birth of an American Terrorist Group. Early this year, according to the lawsuit, the commissioner's court created a new library advisory board, packed it with political appointees, and closed the meetings to the public. The plaintiffs say they have no recourse but the courts. We've lost friends <laughs> over this. Uh, there are people in town that used to say hi to me, and they don't do that anymore. Little is a 37-year-old grad student in library science and a mom whose kids use the public library. In Llano, a mostly white, mostly Republican, cowboy-flavored town of fewer than 4,000 souls, she says the social cost of suing the library has been profound. However, um, I knew that when my kids get older and they have something that they need to stand up for, uh, I couldn't in good conscience tell them 
to speak up and speak out if I didn't do the same thing myself. The first hearing to ask a federal judge to force Llano County to return the restricted books is set for the end of this month in Austin. John Burnett, NPR News, Llano, Texas. Let's turn now to My Unsung Hero, a series from the podcast Hidden Brain. It's a collection of stories about people whose kindness left a lasting impression on someone else. Today's installment comes from therapist and author Lori Gottlieb, remembering a particularly bad day at work. After she got the news that a beloved patient of hers had died, she excused herself to the bathroom. When she was alone, she started to break down. As I'm crying in the bathroom... A person walks in who's dressed professionally, who I assume is another therapist on the floor. And she says, are you okay? And I said, yes, my this patient that I was incredibly close with died. And even though I knew she was going to die, it's the finality of it is really hitting me hard. And she was just so empathetic. She didn't really say a lot. She just sort of oh, that must be so hard, I understand, yeah, that's awful, you know, those kinds of things. But it was just that she connected with me, that she saw me, that I wasn't alone in my sadness for for that minute. The next day, sitting in the waiting room, was a package for me. It had my name on it, so this person figured out, I guess, who I was, And it was a package of like bath salts and lovely teas and a chocolate bar. And it was not from another therapist. It was from another patient, somebody who had been coming to see another therapist on our floor who happened to be using the bathroom. And what she wrote in the note was that seeing me cry over the loss of my patient was profound for her because it reminded her how much her own therapist must care about her. And she wanted me to know that patients care just as much about their own therapists. And she said that we therapists think of ourselves as taking care of our patients, but it looked like I needed someone to take care of me too. And she wanted to do that for me. And she signed it, um, somebody else's patient. She wasn't expecting anything back from me. In fact, she signed her letter anonymously for that reason. She, she was making it very clear that there was nothing transactional about it at all. It was just human to human. I see you. I was there with you in your pain. And, you know, I, I hope you're doing okay. How beautiful is that? Really beautiful. Lori Gottlieb is the co-host of the podcast Dear Therapists. Her latest book is called Maybe You Should Talk to Someone. You can find more stories from My Unsung Hero wherever you get your podcasts. And to share the story of your unsung hero, record a voice memo on your phone and email it to myunsunghero at hiddenbrain.org. It's NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Red Sox are back at home at Fenway for their final series of the season. It's against the Tampa Bay Rays, who have won 12 of their 16 matchups with the Sox. Rich Hill throws the first pitch at 7-10 tonight. Tyler Glass now for the Rays. Looks like clouds should spend the night tonight. Breezy and colder in the mid-40s overnight. Could have some rain tomorrow afternoon. Gray skies once again. Breezy and a little bit milder, moving toward 60. Wednesday may be wet. Things should, though, turn sunny and warmer as the week goes on. It's 6.30.
We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Arts Emerson's Drum Folk. They took away the drums, but they could not stop the beat. Drum Folk is a high-energy, thrilling, percussive celebration inspired by the Stono Rebellion of 1739. In Boston, October 5th through 16th at the Cutler Majestic Theater. Tickets at artsemerson.org. And Tapas 529 in Melrose for sharing and sampling Spanish and Mediterranean taste sensations. Reserving now for private holiday parties, tapas529.com.